series. Can they do it again for yeah. the second now night in a row? You can't have any empty trips now. You've got to score. Ryan with Howard rolling to the basket. And Cole Brock is in issue. He's going to have to shoot it with three, with two. In trouble. Four stop. And in. Unbelievable. How hard that shot is to make. Wow. That's a double head fake from behind the three-point line with a man draped on you. Amazing stuff again for Kobe. Last defensive play the Lakers made was the block by Dwight on Rudy Gay. And that's what led to Kobe making this ridiculous double head fake from behind the arc then just elevate and knock it down. Not easy. 107-103. Shot on its feet. Lakers down. In trouble. Quickly. Bryant. Three from the corner. Yes! Kobe! You can't score any quicker than that. Now, even if they do score, it's still a one-possession game. Now you want, your, you want your defense to step up one time. There's Kobe's bucket a moment ago. Just silly stuff for Kobe. I mean, just catching fire, and I mean nothing but bottom. And I said they had to score quickly. You, you don't score any quicker than that. That's just catch, elevate, shoot, score. And then on the instead of giving them that three-point opportunity, it's an argument that'll rage for a long time. Yeah, it always it will. But you know, teams like to play percentages. But when you've got a player like Kobe, uh, sometimes those percentages go out the window. You know, the Lakers have come back probably with five, uh, four shooters. Whoever takes the ball out, if you're close to him, you're going to affect his shot. Come out in a different set. Ball out of bounds. Got to get it in. No timeouts to save yourself. And Blake gets it into Kobe. Kobe, good little fake. Three to tie. Three to tie. We're tied to Kobe again. I really would. T I mean, I'm amazed at how these coaches. I would. I wouldn't put two guys on Kobe. I wouldn't have guarded guard the out of bounds. Even if he gets it back, somebody other than number 24 is going to have to take the last shot. When are they going to learn that he's deadly? Magnificent. Brilliant. I mean, this is up to, I mean, double him up. Why are you worried about anybody? He fakes. They're there. He elevates. He scores. You get the feeling that J.R. Smith feels that Derek Fisher cannot defend him one-on-one. -on -one. Crowd on its feet, chanting defense. Smith now trying to defend Kobe Bryant. Shot clock at six. Bryant for three. Puts it in. Kobe Bryant from downtown. And the Lakers regain the lead. So the Lakers forcing it to be in this position to, to either tie it or win it with a three. Well, just the way they've played all game long, I think they're kind of fortunate. They just have not been sharp at all. But they've got a chance here to either win it or send it into an extra five-minute session. Our test the trigger man. Trying to get it to Kobe. He's got it. Can he get it off in time on the run off the glass? Did it! He did it again! Amazing! Kobe has just won it for the Lakers. Well, look at it. I tell you, the guy, Kobe has done it in the last second of the contest. Well, I think you know why I played that. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Tellus. If you're listening live, this is not a rerun. This is not a mistake. The show is really starting at 4.05 in the morning Pacific time. 
on February 1st, 2020. You may wonder, why would I do a show at 4 a.m.? I guess it's good for Europe. In London, it just passed noon. But on the East Coast, it's 7 a.m. on Saturday. I doubt many people are up who listen to this show. And on the West Coast, it's 4 a.m. But this is when I can squeeze it in. I am in a secret location for one night. And I have chosen, despite being in a secret location, instead of getting in the bed and relaxing, I have actually chosen to do this show and to get whatever sleep I can manage to get after the show and then move on. So I'm I'm really here for one night. That's it. And I had a complication getting here. I actually had a tire problem with my car to where I had to abandon my car. And I, I don't have my car right now. I fortunately broke down. Or I didn't break down, but I noticed a problem with my tire that I didn't want to continue driving very close to an airport to where I was able to rent a car. That part was fortunate that I happened to notice the problem with a car when I was by an airport. So I, I wasn't going to the airport. I was passing by one, and it happened that it was near an airport. And even though it was at night when other car rental places would be closed, since it was near an airport, I was able to get a car and continue on to my destination where I am for one night. And I decided to do the show for this one night instead of skipping the show this week. Because I can't do it tomorrow night. I can't do it Sunday night. And it's got to be this or nothing. So I'm actually doing it Saturday morning, 4 a.m. Most of you will hear this in the archives. I don't think we will get much of a live listenership. And as you might guess, there's no free roll tonight. (laughs) Because there would be like nobody in it, I imagine. I'm afraid to even look at the ratings. It'll be depressing. Plus, this show was not announced until, like, very shortly before it began. It's not even like I announced it way in advance and just people wouldn't be up at the time. It was both unannounced and very, very late at a very bad time for everybody in the U.S. With that said, we're going to do a show. Most of our listenership is in the archives. So it doesn't really matter when I do the show. I like having a live show. I like having live listeners. I'll pick up some, I'm sure, as the show progresses, because it'll get to be a better and better time for people as they wake up. But whoever's listening can listen. You can go in the chat room and chat there. In fact, I'm not even in the chat room yet. I better open that up. You need a Flash-enabled device and a form account in good standing to get into the chat room, meaning no iPhone or iPad. Is there anyone in the chat room? Let's see. Anyone, anyone, anyone? Yes. There is someone in the chat room. Me. (laughs) That's it. I guess I haven't missed anything because there's nobody else there. At least there won't be anyone trolling me there. You can still call the show. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can call the Mount Charleston line. 702-430-1808. Those are both ways into the show. Mount Charleston is a mountain near Las Vegas. And it's about 45 minutes away by car. I have an old 70s rotary telephone sitting on top of the mountain, which forwards to me wherever I go. If you want to text the show or text me anytime, day or night, whether the show is on or not, you can text me 775-372-8355. Yes, the same as our main number. The call to listen line is something you can use to listen to the show. You just call it up and listen. does not require a smartphone does not require a data plan, does not require an app. 
does not require a computer or the internet, nothing. If you have data, it won't waste any of your data. It's just a phone call. 605-313-0736. 605-313-0736 is the number or the alternate call to listen line, 641-741-1095. You just call up and listen. Never buffers, never freezes, never slows down. Just blast the show to you through your phone, and you can do it with a very, very weak signal on your cell phone. Zero bars it will even work. As long as you have a connection, you can listen to the show through the call to listen line. We also support... Listening through the TuneIn app, you can listen live through that. Search for Poker Fraud Alert, and you'll see two entries. One is the show in the archives. One is the live show. You can go to the radio tab on Poker Fraud Alert. There will be various links to click on depending on what device you have, and you can listen to the show that way if you're listening live. To hear the show in the archives, various ways to do it. You can use iTunes. You can use Google Play. The Stitcher app the TuneIn app, as I mentioned, the Bullhorn app, or even Amazon Alexa. Just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio, and it will play you the last episode that was done. A lot of different ways to listen to the show. You can also download or play the MP3 file, which we post every week, very shortly after the show is complete. Just click on the MP3 button on the Poker Fraud Alert Radio page, and it'll take you there. It's also the same place as the Radio Archives Forum. Wait, did I say archives? I mean archives. I'm very sorry. If you go to there, that forum, that Radio Archives forum, you will see all the shows we've ever done listed there. You just click on it. There's the MP3. You can download it. You can just click on it. It'll play directly on your device. Very, very easy. So many different ways to listen. We don't have Trader Ruski tonight. I didn't even bother to ask him because I know he's sleeping. He already drank his tea. He's fast asleep. Many of you will wake up and say, I did not know there was radio. I am surprised to see Poker Fraud Alert Radio pushing to my device. If you have it subscribed on your favorite podcasting service. So maybe it'll be a pleasant surprise for you on your Saturday, the very first day of February 2020. But we're going to do a, a full regular show here. And I will take phone calls. Just try to do it in between topics. It won't be a super long show, because I have things to do today, and I can't sleep till 5 p.m. or something. You know, I gotta, I've got to get up. I've got to sleep some. So I'm not going to be finishing this six hours later. But I do have a number of topics to discuss. I've, I think I have 11 topics, so I better get going. No free roll, so we can skip that. I'll get right to the agenda, and then we will start. The coronavirus. No doubt you've heard about that. A scare, a pandemic scare. Is it possible that this will be something that wipes out a lot of human beings? Something with no cure? Something which can kill people? Something which may spread and may spread a lot faster than is currently believed? Is this the big pandemic that we've been fearing? But more importantly... For this show, at least, not more importantly overall, but more importantly to discuss here. Is it safe to play live poker? Is it safe to go to a casino now? Should you just stay home and avoid the germ pools known as casinos and poker rooms? I will give you my opinion and I will tell you what I'm doing. 
Phil Galfond is doing what's known as the Galfond Challenge, where he took pretty much all comers, though I think that may not be quite true. He offered to play very high-stakes, heads-up PLO. I discussed this before. But he he challenged the public to play him heads-up at very high-stakes PLO on his site. And the first of those matches is against some internet guy named Van Vitti1993. No one knows who it is. But that match is going. It's been going on for eight days. And Phil Galfond is getting crushed. He's getting absolutely destroyed. So we'll talk about the Galfond Challenge, if Phil really is going to lose millions on this thing, and is it all his money? And if it is, how can he afford it? So we'll discuss all of that. Many people texted me about Kobe Bryant. Many, many people texted me on Saturday morning, or Sunday morning it was, Sunday morning, about Kobe Bryant's death. I, that's how I discovered it, is I got a ton of texts rolling in. Did you hear about Kobe? Now, by the time you're listening to this, I'm sure you heard about Kobe. And many people wanted to know what my reaction was, because I spent most of my life in the Los Angeles area. I was a Lakers fan. I still am a Lakers fan. So obviously I must have an opinion on Kobe. And I will tell you my opinion of Kobe as a player, as a person, what I thought of him when he was on the Lakers, what I thought of him... After he was on the Lakers, that is, retired, he was never on any other team, and how the death affected me. I'll let you know all these things as a longtime Lakers fan. The Oklahoma governor wants to do away with all of the gaming devices. That's everything. Slot machines, craps tables, blackjack tables, everything. The, The governor wants it all gone. Because he says that an Indian casino compact that they had has expired. And in fact, that it expired on January 1st, 2020. The Indian casinos say, no, it auto-renewed until 2035. What is the truth? We're going to discuss this, and I'm going to tell you where this is going. I have an update for everybody on the Matt Berkey story I told last week. I mentioned how Berkey and I went back and forth because I made kind of a half-joke about the way he described his training program using the word holistic, and I said it was pretentious. I mentioned that on Twitter. I wasn't being totally serious. I was just kind of screwing around, and it got back to him, obviously. I wasn't trying to do it behind his back, but but he saw it. He responded. We went back and forth. It wasn't that hostile. It was just we went back and forth about it, and he even invited me to sit in on his training uh, class and give my honest opinion of it. So there's an update to that story where he discussed the issue that occurred with me on a show he appeared on. So I'm going to play you that clip, and then I will tell you what I think of what he had to say on there. I have another update for you. The former Bachelor contestant who won the DraftKings Million Dollar Prize has been disqualified for cheating. We suspected that might happen. It has happened. I'll tell you more about that in that segment. I've had a lot of curiosity about earning diamond at Caesars. This is a good time of year to do it because uh, if you earn it the normal way, you'll have it for two years. If you earn it through some sort of status match type program, you'll have it for one year. 
but it's a, a good time always at the beginning of the calendar year to get diamond, whatever way you get it. And a number of people have been going for it through the Founders card, which I'll talk about again. And I will also tell you of a new way I learned about, thanks to a listener, that you can get Caesar's Diamond for under $100. I have not tried this, but this person insists that it works. Do it at your own risk. There's nothing illegal about it. There's nothing against Caesar's policy about it. But when I say your own risk, I mean if you try it and spend the $95 that you're going to spend and it doesn't work, don't come crying to me. But I will tell you how this person says he did it, and the person seems pretty reliable, so I think he's right. So that's another way to get Caesar's Diamond without having to play. I'll tell you about that when we get to that segment. A rich recreational player known as Bill Perkins, well, not known as Bill Perkins, that's his name, Bill Perkins, he believes you should die with no money to your name. Why would he believe that? And... I will also bridge to a subtopic about the inheritance tax. Is it right or wrong? Because this came up on Twitter. In fact, if you look at my Twitter, you'll see a lot of discussions between me and others, including Bill Perkins, about the inheritance tax. I will tell you how I feel about the inheritance tax and also about Bill Perkins and a book he wrote about how he wants you to die with no money to your name. Party Poker CEO Rob Young wants facial recognition to be required for play on the site. Now, to be clear, this has not happened, but he's saying that this is something he desires for the near future. So we'll discuss how that could possibly work and if it's a good idea. If you're in Las Vegas or you'll be in Las Vegas in the next few days, you may want to visit the Hard Rock because the Hard Rock is going to be gone. The Hard Rock Las Vegas is shutting down on February 3rd and It's selling its furniture, so if you need furniture in Vegas, you can buy some of the Hard Rock furniture. Finally, did you play Atari as a kid? Do you have fond memories of Atari? Do you like video games in general? Well, this new planned hotel might be for you because there's an Atari-themed hotel planned for several cities, including Las Vegas. It'll actually be an Atari-branded hotel. Yes, that Atari. That is our agenda for this morning. No free roll. And to be honest, we're not going to spend a ton of time on any of these topics because I want to get through the show in a reasonable amount of time. And we've got 11 topics. So, look, if I spend a half an hour on each, on average, that'll be fine. But some will be longer, some will be shorter, but... I'm going to try to get through them, give you all the info you need to know, and then move on. But, of course, if you want to call in, you can. Okay, so let's get going here. Let's talk about the coronavirus. First of all, 2020 has really been an eventful year, and it's now only a month old. And that's pretty amazing because... Usually this much does not happen in the first month of the year. But there's a lot of things that have happened already in 2020. The killing of Soleimani, the Iraqi or Iranian general who was uh, connected to a lot of terrorism, that occurred after January 1st. In, In all of 2019, he was alive. Doesn't that seem like ages ago? The coronavirus... 
You probably had not heard of that until 2020. Kobe Bryant passed away in 2020. Trump was impeached in 2020. And Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders were on civil terms until 2020. All these things changed in 2020, which we've only been in for a month. It's so strange to think about how much has changed. And this has actually led to the year feeling like it's gone slow. In that, uh, not so much that I feel the days have passed by slowly, but that if you think about so many things that have happened, like to think about Soleimani, that he wasn't killed until 2020, it, it seems like ages ago when that happened. But no, we, that's, we're way past that now. Now we have all these other stories. The coronavirus is one of the biggest stories of the day. And I'll tell you, the first time I heard about it, I thought, okay, this is just another weird virus that they discovered and it's in China. I didn't think it's going to affect me very much. I, I was not trying to be callous, but the truth is with seven plus billion people on the planet, there's going to be a lot of tragic deaths every day in the world, like a whole lot of them. And if you get depressed over every one of them, you'll go crazy. It's just a numbers game there's going to be a certain number of uh, people facing death and despair every day. So when I heard about the coronavirus in China, I thought, okay, well, that's too bad for whoever's infected by it and is killed by it. But, But two things about it didn't scare me that much. Number one, it was in China. And number two, it was supposedly only killing those who already had some kind of existing major health problem or people who are very, very elderly. So neither of these applied to me or anybody in my family. What I had heard about it at first was that if you get it, that it'll feel like the flu and it will resolve, unless you are extremely elderly or have some kind of existing health problem that this reacts with and and can cause your death. So I'm not to trivialize it at first, but I thought, okay, well, that's not good to hear about, but, you know, big deal. But then they started reporting it was getting to the U.S. because people were traveling from China into the U.S. and bringing it into the U.S., and that was a little more concerning. Then it started being reported that every day the number of cases was growing pretty rapidly. Not exponentially, which is important, which I'll get to, but still growing. Every day we're, we're getting more and more cases. It just seems like the number of reported cases is growing, 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 growing with no end in sight. So that was a problem. And uh, the first time I really thought about it and how it affects me personally was when I went to Commerce on Sunday night. This past Sunday, less than a week ago. I went to Commerce and just as I walked into Commerce, and I, I don't live close to Commerce, so it's a drive to get there. So I drove all the way there. And I've been going a lot recently. I've been going a lot, and I've actually been doing pretty well. I guess if I was getting beat there all the time, I'd probably, I'd, probably, I'd probably be taking a break. But I've been doing well, so I've been going on average about once a week to commerce, sometimes more. I went there on Sunday night, and I played. And as I was there, I'm thinking, hang on a second. 
maybe this is not a good place to be. The dealers are just about all Asian, many Chinese, many not American Chinese, but Chinese actually from mainland China. Many of them probably have relatives that have come from China in recent times and could have brought over the coronavirus. The players are overwhelmingly Asian, many Chinese there, and you know poker chips, how full of germs they are and how they pass around so much, and it, it really is a very easy way to get sick playing poker or really being in any casino and handling chips or touching machines. So I started to think about it, and I go, wow, if I had to pick like the worst place to be in the United States right now for the coronavirus, I think Commerce Casino might be it. Think about it. Lots and lots of people from mainland China working there. A whole lot of different people in one place. So you're exposed to a ton of people. A big Chinese population of players there. So I thought, wow, this is this is probably a mistake. Now, was I worried I'm going to walk out of there having contracted the the coronavirus? No, but... I did think about it and go, wait, like the whole time I was just kind of sitting there going, you know, this may not be a good idea. This may be like an unnecessary risk I'm taking. It's a small risk, but the problem is what if it is deadlier than what they're saying? What if it's not just people dying who already have an existing existing condition? And what if that tiny chance hits me and then it kills me? You could say, well, look, you could get killed driving there or driving back from there. Yeah, I could. But this is an additional risk, and I would just feel so stupid if this is what got me, if this is what was killing me. I would just feel so stupid where I could have avoided it by just not going to commerce. It's just like adding an additional risk I don't need to have. So I said, wow, you know, maybe I shouldn't go to commerce until we know a bit more about this. So that's how I felt about commerce. And... In the past week, there's been a lot more concern in the general public about the coronavirus. And I decided to bring up the discussion. I brought it up on Twitter. I brought it up in an existing thread about the coronavirus on Poker Fraud Alert's Flying Stupidity Forum. I brought this up in a lot of places and said, look, let's talk about commerce. Is this a good place to go at this point or should it be avoided? What about other casinos? So this discussion started. And there were mixed opinions on it. Some people thought this is overcautiousness. People compared it to the flu, saying, look how many flu cases there are every year in the U.S. Look how many result in deaths in the U.S. every year in a normal year. Far more than the coronavirus has caused, both in number of cases and number of deaths. So are we fearing the wrong thing? If And the, you could pass the flu around at, the, at Commerce just as easily. So... If you're not that afraid of the flu and you go to commerce, why should you be that afraid of the coronavirus? That's what some people were saying, including Matt Savage, who has a reason to be saying it because Matt Savage is the tournament director and currently the L.A. Poker Classic is going on there. But there were others who said, yeah, I'm staying away, too. Others saying, yeah, you'd be crazy to go there right now. So a number of people agreed that commerce is a place you should stay away from. A lot of people announced that they are staying away as well. What was commerce like on Sunday night? Dead. Very, very little action there. 
Now, it was late Sunday night, but it wasn't that late. I got there at 9 p.m., and I noticed that it was deader than usual. And at first, I thought, well, this is about Kobe Bryant, because this is the same day that Kobe Bryant passed away. And I thought, well, I bet people just aren't in the mood to play. They're just, the whole city's kind of in a funk here over Kobe Bryant's tragic helicopter crash where he and his daughter and seven other people died. And that may have had something to do with it, but then I thought, you know what? Maybe it's not Kobe keeping people away. Maybe it's the coronavirus. And I did look around. I did see some people wearing masks in there. So I'm like, oh, boy. So, look, I think commerce is a place you shouldn't go at this point. And, you know, sorry to Matt Savage, who likes this show, always been nice to me. I don't want to see his L.A. Poker Classic fail. Uh, I know it won't look good for him to his bosses. Look, Justin Hammer already got fired from Commerce for unknown reasons last year. And if uh, the LAPC flops badly, they, they could believe that this had to do with Matt Savage just not doing a good job. I will tell you that Matt Savage does do a good job. I'm very happy with the job that Matt Savage does as tournament director. If it does flop this year, which... I haven't looked at the numbers, but by judging from the cash games there, it's pretty dead. It's not because of the lack of excitement about the tournament series that Matt put together. It's because of the coronavirus, which, of course, is far out of his control. So while I'm sure Matt would love you to show up, my advice is stay away from the most likely place I can think of in the U.S. for one to catch the coronavirus. What about other L.A. card rooms? What about the bike? No, that's no better. That's pretty much the same. What about ones that aren't commerce of the bike? What about the Hustler? What about Hawaiian Gardens? A little bit better because you have fewer people and fewer, uh, like a lower percentage of the dealers are Asian, but still, uh, it's a risk. All the L.A. area card rooms are a substantial risk. I know someone who went to the Ventura card room called the Players Club because they figured over there you're going to get less exposure, which is true. The number of Chinese dealers is a lot fewer. The room itself is pretty small. You're, and the reason the size of the room matters is you have a lot lower number of people handling the chips. So the fewer people around to possibly infect you, the, the better. So yes, if you're going to go to a card room in L.A., seek a smaller one and seek ones that you've noticed have fewer Chinese dealers. I'm not trying to be racist here or anything. I'm just talking about from a practical standpoint. The coronavirus came from China, and people who are from mainland China or who have daily contact with those from mainland China, such as family members, are the ones most a threat to spreading it, and that's just a fact. I am staying away from commerce until I know more. If eventually it's well known that uh, this isn't a big deal, then I will return. I'm not going to be overly paranoid, but at the same time, I think we don't know enough yet. I think it's there's a, a number of question marks that I want to see answered. And we don't have all the answers yet, and it, I'm taking a wait-and-see approach 
In fact, I had two events I was planning upon playing later in February at the LA Poker Classic. I may be skipping those. We will see. Depends where this all goes. What about general casinos? What about going to Las Vegas and playing in just your favorite casino there? Well, it's an increased risk. It is. There's a lot of Chinese people who go to Las Vegas. Las Vegas is obviously very highly visited. A lot of people are going through. A lot of people are touching things. A lot of people are handling the chips. I don't think it's as much as of a danger as commerce because there's just a lower concentration of Chinese people there, especially as dealers. But still, there is some risk that is elevated there in Las Vegas, especially if you're handling chips. I don't think that's worth canceling your Vegas trip at this time. But at the same time, if you can schedule a Vegas trip anytime, I would suggest doing it a little later than sooner. Like if if you're thinking you're going to go on March 1st, uh, wait till April 1st. <laughs> that's, you'll know more by then. And don't spend too much money on something that you can't cancel. Because if this really takes off and gets bad, then you're not going to want to go to Vegas. Now, how likely do I think that this is going to become something awful? Like, it is in the U.S. So, are we going to see a massive pandemic to where just tons of people are infected with it and tons of people are dying and it becomes the thing we have all feared? Bill Gates famously has said that he believes that's the biggest threat to the world that eventually there's going to be a big reduction to the world's population because of a pandemic that nobody's going to be able to control. And some people are going, oh, this is it. This is it. It's it's come to get us in 2020. Uh, I don't foresee that happening. And there is a good sign with the coronavirus, and that is despite the increase in numbers, and I'm talking about the infections, we're not seeing an exponential increase which we probably would be seeing if this was a threat to spread like some people fear. We're seeing kind of a steady increase, which isn't good, but it's not horrible. What you don't want to see is a tremendous increase to where you think it's going to go from hundreds to millions within a very short time. That would be very concerning. Here it's it's adding a few thousand every every day or so, but that's that's not the same thing, and that's more following the pattern of something that's going to peak, and then getting under some control and and decline. A lot of people are comparing it to SARS. You guys aren't afraid of SARS anymore, are you? Remember all the fear about SARS a number of years ago. So this could be another SARS. There's been some comparisons as to why it's worse than SARS. But the real concerns here are the rate of spread and the deadliness of it. For the average person, the deadliness of it it really matters because if you don't have a major medical condition at the moment, then you have a lot less to fear. And if, if everybody in your family does not have any kind of major medical condition at the moment then that's a lot less unnerving to you. And I'm not dismissing those who do have such conditions and who 
could easily be killed if they were to get this. I'm not saying these people aren't uh, worth having around on this earth. I'm just saying that uh, when you hear about this, the fear people tend to have is for themselves and for their loved ones. And very secondarily, everybody else. And that's just human nature. And I'll be honest, that's how I feel. It's it's sad to see other people dying from this, but I think about, is this going to affect me or my family or others I care about? That's the the biggest concern. I don't think we're going to get there. But I'm also not saying that we should just not worry about it and it's going to be nothing. I think it has an outside chance of being something problematic. Like, really problematic. I think it has an outside, outside chance of being horrible. There's been some question about the World Series of Poker. Now, this is four months away. But what if, in those four months, this gets worse and worse and worse? Will they cancel the World Series of Poker? Well, the World Series of Poker has claimed, they've already put out a statement about this, believe it or not, that all systems are go. They are not even considering canceling the World Series of Poker, despite the fact that uh, the coronavirus outbreak has occurred. Now, this could change. If this gets to be horrible, then this could change. The The reason that uh, this is being discussed is because the 2020 Triton Super High Roller Series has been postponed until further notice. So this is the first poker series that has been canceled due to the coronavirus. This Triton Super High Roller is to, was to take place in Jeju, South Korea. And that has been canceled. That was scheduled for February 10th. So... With that canceled, people go, well, okay, what about the World Series? Now, the World Series, they're not ruling out that it could possibly be canceled, but at the moment, it uh, is not going to have any kind of planned cancellation or changes based upon the coronavirus. But they are leaving the door open. It could happen. Seth Polanski, who usually is the one to deliver the news about this. He's the VP of Corporate Communications for the World Series of Poker. And uh, I email with him here and there whenever there's uh, something to discuss about the World Series uh, that I want to bring to their attention. That's who I email. Seth said, we've been monitoring the situation. We will continue to lean on the experts on this field for guidance. At this time, all our events and schedules remain intact and are planned to go on without interruption. What would change that? Well, the World Series is a very, very, very big deal for the Caesars Corporation. Very, very big. This is a cash cow for them. It's guaranteed money in their pocket. Not just from the events where they make a lot, but also from everything else that goes with it. The food they sell the people who descend upon the Rio and their other properties who lose money gambling there. They, they just they make all kinds of money in all kinds of ways during those seven weeks of the World Series. It's, it's been a tremendous success. Every year it gets better for them. So to cancel it 
would be a disaster for Caesars. They, they do not want to do that. They would cancel it or maybe postpone it if the coronavirus got to be such a concern to where there is advisement from the U.S. government that people should stay away from things like this. So if the government put out a notice that you should stay out of mass public places like this, then the World Series would cancel it. But short of that, I don't see it happening. Even if the coronavirus got substantially worse than it is right now and stayed that way through late May when the World Series of Poker is to start, they will not cancel it. They will only cancel it if it is advised by government officials that that's what should be done. And I'm not saying if they're forced to do it, of course, then they'd have to, but I'm saying even if it's advised that people should not be going to, to events like the World Series of Poker, then I could see them canceling it just for PR reasons and also liability reasons. But short of that, which I don't think is going to happen, the World Series of Poker 2020 will take place. You might want to know, let's say the coronavirus stays about the same as it is now, and let's say we don't really learn much more about it, which we will just from the amount of time that passes and what happens to people who get it in the U.S. and how fast it spreads in the U.S., but let's just let's just say hypothetically. In fact, let's say we move the calendar, and this is all happening in uh, mid-May instead of late January, okay? Would I still go to the World Series? The answer is yes, but I would be watching very closely. And if I started to feel that... I would be taking a substantial risk being there, then I wouldn't. And again, the reason I would go there and not commerce is because the World Series of Poker dealers, there's very few Chinese nationals that are dealing at the World Series. Most people dealing at the World Series of Poker are Americans. And uh, the there aren't even that many Asian dealers at all, but the Asian dealers that are there tend to be Americanized Asians who don't have contact with people from mainland China. I'm not saying there's none, but there aren't many. And as far as the number of players at the World Series of Poker from mainland China, it's a relatively small percentage. So it's it's not something to worry about other than just there's a mass number of people touching those chips and crammed in a small place. But I still think something like commerce is a lot more dangerous for the reasons I stated. So don't be certain the World Series is going to dodge any delay or cancellation from the coronavirus. But it's not going to happen lightly because they don't want to. Remember, the whole point of the World Series is to make money for Caesars. And they really, really, really don't want to cancel this or delay it because if they delay it, then a lot of people who've cleared their schedules to go may not want to do it again. So they... When they've announced the schedule to have to say, okay, we're, we're changing the whole thing. It's, it's moving back a few months. It's, they may do that if, if they absolutely have to, but aside from that, they really want this to go forward as it is. And I think it's going to take a whole lot for that to stop. Do I think it's going to affect the numbers very much? I don't think so. 
But maybe if, if this goes on long enough and the public gets scared enough, it could. If it were to be held next week, I think that there would be some decline in numbers, but not really terrible. But I think the fact that it's four months away is going to help them because people will learn about it. And in all likelihood, it will turn out that it's not much more to be concerned about than the flu. And as long as it's just a, a second flu, so to speak, people aren't going to be panicking. We've, we've been dealing with a flu forever here. And it's, it's generally accepted in this country that a lot of people get the flu. Millions get the flu every year. Millions. And that a certain number of them die. In fact, thousands die every year from the flu in the United States. Are you in a panic about that? No, you've, you've been used to that your whole life, that thousands die each year from the flu. Why are you not in a panic? Because those dying from the flu tend to be very old, already sick, or most tragically, very, very young children, like babies and toddlers. And again, I'm not trivializing that, but... Uh, if, if you're a 40-year-old guy playing at the World Series, you're not going, oh my God, I, I better not get the flu or I'm going to die. And you're not even that worried that you're going to get the flu and bring it home and your wife's going to die or your kids are going to die. They're not, as long as they're not tiny babies. Like Benjamin, he's, he's nine years old. If he were to catch the flu, he would not die from the flu. It'd be highly unusual. He's old enough already to where the flu... It's more of a danger to him than me, but it's, it's still a relatively low danger as far as uh, death. Uh, my parents, uh, for them, it's higher. They're not sick, but they're in their mid-70s, so yeah, they, they have a higher chance of uh, having something very bad happen from the flu. But they're still not quite there because they're, they're healthy, and they're not super elderly. They're just in their 70s. So the, the average person coming to the World Series doesn't fear the flu. And if the coronavirus is pretty much another version of the flu, then when I say another version, I mean it is the flu. I'm saying if it's similar to the flu, then people are not going to fear it anymore. And we're going to have four months in between for everyone to get a handle on it. And the hysteria will die down if that's the case. But if it's something a lot worse, then yeah. Or, or if there's a lot of unknown to it still, then yeah, it's going to affect it, even if it still goes on. Of course, we will monitor this situation, and if there's a turn for the worse, we'll discuss this on the show again. Hopefully, there is not. There is some discussion about the flu and how it killed a tremendous number of people in 1918. And you may not know about this because nobody listening to this show was alive or anywhere near being alive in 1918 but there was a flu pandemic all over the world in uh, 1918 and as much as five percent of the world population died can you imagine if that happened today five percent of the world population would be like uh, 350 million can you imagine 350 million people worldwide dying including many in the u.s that would be a really, really tremendous thing in a very, very bad way. 195,000 died 
in one month, in October 1918, in the United States. Now, by the way, it wasn't 350 million people dying back then because the population was much, much smaller in the world, but 3 to 5% of the population was said to have died during the worldwide 1918 flu pandemic. So some people are saying, well, okay, this is going to be the new version of it. It's not going to be the flu, but it's, it's going to be the coronavirus this time. But the reason we can't say that's going to happen again is because viruses were poorly understood back then. There's been so much progress in medicine in the past 102 years. And it's, it's not even close. And even though there's not cure for viruses now, the ability to stop people from dying from them has uh, greatly increased since 1918. And the understanding of how they work and how they affect the human body has greatly increased since 1918. There is very, very little known about viruses and how they transmit back in 1918. In fact, believe it or not, there is not even advice in 1918 to wash your hands. That's how little was known. They, they actually did not realize that washing your hands would, would cut down on the spread of the virus, which, which sounds insane. But yes, in 1918, they didn't know you're supposed to wash your hands as a precaution against contracting the flu. Uh, the precautions that were advised in November 1918 were wash inside of your nose with soap and water each night. And I'll do the same thing in the morning. Force yourself to sneeze night and morning. Then breathe, breathe deeply. Do not wear a muffler. Take sharp walks regularly. Walk home from work and eat plenty of porridge. <laughs> They're telling you to eat plenty of porridge to prevent the flu, but not wash your hands. Squirt soap up your nose and force yourself to do it and force yourself to sneeze every night, every morning with with soapy water in your nose. But don't wash your hands. Take a sharp walk. I think they mean like a brisk walk, but (laughs) take a sharp walk regularly. Eat plenty of porridge, but you don't need to wash your hands. No big deal. And a, a brisk walk is not going to do anything, by the way, to stop a virus from infecting your body. <laughs> so it was very poorly understood back then. And therefore, it cannot be compared to today. There may not be a cure for the virus, but there's so much more understood about preventing the spread and also in preventing the virus from killing people once people have it. With that said, something really nasty and difficult that is new can wipe out a lot of people, especially those that are already sick in some way. And when I say sick, I don't mean you have a cold. I mean something that's already major that you're dealing with, that's already really taxing your body. Don't be too afraid, but at the same time, don't write it off. Just watch and just take some precautions. That's my advice to you, and that's what I'm going to be doing myself. We actually have two people in the chat room, JSTAT and Vegetera. JSTAT actually brought up a good point. 
that advantage players who want to go to a casino where they're banned from might be able to get away with it because of the coronavirus scare. That uh, before, if you were to wear a mask and goggles or something covering your face and you walk in a casino, they're going to go, okay, this is obviously someone who's trying to hide their face and and the security may approach them and and, uh, watch what they're doing or ask them to remove it and see if there's someone who shouldn't be there. But but now they go, oh, this is just some guy paranoid about the coronavirus. That's a good point. It's a good point. He also said, uh, Baccarat pits are petri dishes for the coronavirus and that the world economy will crash if there's a worldwide academic from the coronavirus. Well, that's interesting you bring that up. It's already happening in Macau. Macau has had its tourism rate drop by 50% because of the coronavirus. There have been seven verified cases there. Might be more, but they're admitting there's seven verified cases. Macau has already canceled the Lunar New Year celebrations. And the stocks of casinos in Macau has already fallen. MGM China has already lost 6%. And other operators have lost uh, 4 to 5% and probably going to keep falling. They are leaving the casinos open for now. But arrivals in Macau, new arrivals of people getting over there, has dropped by 69%. So I think the stocks are going to keep falling. Macau is very, very popular with tourism from mainland China. Mainland China, by the way, is illegal to have gambling. But Macau, you are allowed to gamble. So about 90% of the customer base, or maybe more, is from mainland China. So (laughs) that's talk about something that's scary so the chinese are going no we're we're not going to a casino with other chinese people from mainland china to infect us screw that and you may say well why does it matter they're from mainland china so won't they get infected at home well they're trying to be careful they're thinking the last place we want to be is a casino where everybody's spreading their germs i believe that commerce and other la area casinos are going to struggle I believe that to a lesser degree, other card rooms in other areas will struggle. I think Las Vegas will see a downturn in visitation if this continues. I think people will think twice before booking Vegas trips. I think I think existing Vegas trips people aren't canceling, unless it's easy, unless you're just driving in from L.A. and you can easily drop it. But the people flying in here, I think, are not going to cancel the trip and, and eat the airline uh, ticket that they paid for, but... As far as new trips being booked to Vegas, I could see people saying, hey, you know what, we're going to wait. We're not going to book it. We're going to see. I could see people much less enticed to take Vegas trips. I could see people from L.A. who just drive in on a whim thinking, you know what, no, we're not going to do it for a while. So I think Vegas is going to be hurt by it. Chinese restaurants. How much of a desire do you have to get Chinese food now, especially from a Chinese restaurant that's owned and run by Chinese people who are probably from the mainland at some point and probably have family from the mainland. 
I'm not talking about going to P.F. Chang's, which is Americanized and isn't real Chinese food, but a real Chinese restaurant. Do you you really have a desire to go to one right now? I bet a lot of people don't, even if you do. But those are suffering, the family Chinese restaurants. Anything associated with China will be struggling. Anything that has a mass number of people together where there's a lot of germs known to exist and get people sick, I have to think there's going to be a downturn in those businesses. And it'll be a big downturn if this continues or gets worse for some time. So we will see how badly Macau is affected by this. They're going to be the most affected, but everything else, we'll see. This could really have wide-ranging economic consequences, especially for certain industries. That's something to watch. Just lost my, uh, somehow I lost my connection, not through the internet. I actually lost my equipment, was connected, uh, got unplugged somehow. Don't know how that happened. A ghost came over and unplugged it. It really really was like that. It just just like unplugged itself. Very weird. I'm not in my usual location. That's why. But we're back. Just a very, very brief cutout. Okay. I'm going to move on here to our second topic Phil Galfond. Phil Galfond might be wishing that his opponent had the coronavirus because he is getting absolutely positively destroyed in the Galfond Challenge, in the first match of the Galfond Challenge. And we're not even close to being at the end of the first match of the Galfond Challenge. So let me describe what's going on here. I already talked about this on another show, or another episode of this show. Phil Galfond, in an attempt, what I think is a vain attempt, by the way, to get people playing on his fail poker site run at once, which we've talked about ad nauseum on this program. And I've told you the reasons I think it's failing. And we're not going to go over that again. But in an attempt to drum up publicity for it, he issued the Galfond Challenge, where he says, okay, who wants to play heads-up, high-stakes, meaning 100-200 euro blind minimum, PLO? That's a very big game, 100-200 PLO, 100-200 euro PLO. It's a little bit bigger than $100-200. Heads-up, a lot of variance to it, very, very big game. Who wants to play? And so a lot of people responded. He claimed he got a ton of response. I don't know how he selected the people playing him. But he eventually picked uh, six people. And there may be more eventually, but right now there are six people that are scheduled to play him. Two of them are unknown players from online. One goes by Venny VD1993. He's the one currently playing Galfond. Then there's an online player known as Action Freak, who is thought to be even better than Venny VD1993. Then there's recreational rich guy Bill Perkins, where Galfon's going to have the biggest chance to win. Brandon Adams, a poker veteran who goes back to the early 2000s. Chance Cornuth. And finally, Dan Jungleman Cates. Those are the six. The only match that has a hard date scheduled is the one that's currently running, the one with Venny VD1993. Five of these six are to take place on Phil Galfon's Run It Once site, 
The only one that's not scheduled to take place there is Brandon Adams, who's going to be playing him live. And I had talked about before that I did not think that playing Galfon on his own site is a good idea. Which is going to sound funny with the second part of this topic, because we're going to be discussing how he's getting crushed. So if it's not a good idea to play him on his own site, because you can't trust that it's not rigged for him in some way, you can't fully trust it. And I'm saying, well, he's getting beat super hard. That that should be proving so far that it's not rigged in his favor. If this was happening the opposite, by the way, everyone would be saying it's rigged. Not everybody, but a lot of people would be saying it. But no, Galfon's getting killed, which we'll get to shortly. Now, just to be clear, the reason I'm saying that you should not want to play Galfon on his own side is not because I think Galfon is a cheater, not that I think he would rig it, not that I think he's a dishonest guy. I will tell you, and I'm going to be honest, I'm not being diplomatic here. You guys, you guys know I'm honest about these things. I think Phil Galfond is an honest guy. I think he's a decent guy. I don't think he's a cheater. I've never even heard the slightest rumor that he ever cheats or angle shoots or anything like that. So I don't think he'd do it. Even for a lot of money, I don't think he would do it. But do I know 100% that he wouldn't do it? No. I don't know him that well. I don't even really know him personally. I've exchanged a few messages with him. That's about it. So unless you know someone incredibly well, and I say incredibly well, and trust them with your life pretty much, you do not play them heads up for high stakes on a site that they run and control because you just never know. Sometimes people shock you. Sometimes people surprise you. That's why you have to really, really, really know the person and be sure that they're not going to do this to you because there's so much money involved. And then there's the additional danger, which is much bigger, actually, that it wouldn't be Galfond who would be cheating you. It might be somebody else who has an interest in Galfond winning that could be cheating you without Galfond even knowing. So even if Galfond would never do it and would never approve of it being done, what if one of the programmers is afraid that Run It Once Poker is going to flop if if Galfond doesn't win these matches? then that programmer may want to rig it so Galfon wins. What if the, the programmer thinks, hey, I know that Galfon's not going to have as much money to continue running this site since it's, it's losing money. If, if he loses a ton of money also on this Galfon challenge, he might just shut the whole thing down. And what about the investors in Run It Once Poker? What if they also have a piece of Galfon? They may pressure the programmers to do this behind Galfon's back especially if they know any of these programmers personally. So this could all be happening. It could be rigged for Galfond without Galfond even knowing it's being rigged for him. So he could be the most honest guy in the world. God himself could come down and say, Phil Galfond would never cheat you. And still you could get cheated because someone else who has the power to cheat you, a programmer, an investor who who knows the programmers, they could cheat you. And you don't know these people. You don't know who they are. You may trust them like Galfon, but you don't know these other people. So for these reasons, I, I don't play that high. I never will play that high. And I'm not really a PLO player. I play other forms of Omaha. I don't really like PLO. I like PLO 8, but not just high PLO. So I wouldn't even consider taking on this challenge, this 100, 200 euro PLO. Like I didn't for a second think, oh, maybe I'll do it. But if I did, if this was something I was interested in doing, then... I would not do it on this site. Let's say it was, it was 100, 200 limit hold'em, where 
I, I'm pretty sure I would be a favorite heads up against Galphon and 100, 200 limit hold'em. That challenge I might take, but I wouldn't want it to be on his site. I'd say let's let's play anywhere else. I don't. Well, we can even play on uh, some site play money, and then just settle up later. Like I would trust him to settle up. Uh, but I, I wouldn't want to play out in sight for the reasons I said. Even though I, I think, as far as poker players go, he's trustworthy. And he's a decent guy. And I don't think you guys should trust me to play me heads up at those type of stakes on my poker room. So this is nothing against Galphons. I'm telling you that you, do, you should not want to play me high stakes on any poker room that I control. Online. You, you just shouldn't. Because you don't know me well enough. You may think you know me. But what if behind this whole persona I put on as this uh, fighter of scams, what if I'm really ripping people off in the back? You, you never know. I'm, I'm not taking loans out and not paying people back, but what if, what if I have it in me that if the, the money is really big that I'll rip you off? You don't know. I'm telling you I wouldn't, but you don't know that. Maybe I'm just telling you I wouldn't. So I'm telling you you shouldn't trust me in that same circumstance. So if it were my site, I would say, yeah, don't trust me. You shouldn't play on my site. In fact, I wouldn't want people to play on my site, you know, even if it's completely legal. I wouldn't want people to play me heads up on my own site because if I were to win, there would be suspicion that I could be rigging it. Even if I wasn't rigging it, I wouldn't rig it. But if I were to crush somebody, let's say I just ran really well, everybody would think, oh, I, he, he rigged it. So I wouldn't even want the possibility that people could accuse me of impropriety there. I would want to play somewhere that I could not be accused of having rigged it if I end up doing very well. But Galphon wants it on Run It Once because Run It Once is a fail site and he wants people to be introduced to it. He, and he, he has succeeded in getting people to see Run It Once and getting some people to be aware that it exists at all. So this has been okay as far as a, a marketing gimmick to get people aware of its existence and to think about it, to have it in their consciousness. But I don't think this was a good idea. And the reason I don't think this was a good idea is going to be the second part of this topic, and that is that Gelfond is getting absolutely crushed. He is playing against... This Veni Vidi1993, who nobody knows who it is. The, the person's posted on 2 plus 2 before, but not like really actively. I assume the 1993 is probably in reference to when he was born, making him probably 26 years old, maybe near 27. But that doesn't tell you much. I think he's European. But look, this is a guy who's willing to play 100-200 PLO. 100-200 euro, which is even a little bigger, with a side bet of uh, six figures, euros, and uh, someone who has that type of money and is willing to risk this against a guy like Galfond, who has a very, very good reputation of being a top heads-up PLO player. It's not like Galfond's playing some new game he doesn't know. He was the king of heads-up PLO 10 years ago. So who would who would challenge Galfond? If you if someone asked me who do you want to play heads up PLO, I wouldn't say oh Phil Galfond. I, I would get crushed if I tried to play Phil Galfond heads up PLO. 
So he's he's not somebody that I would choose as an opponent, or you would want to choose as an opponent for any kind of meaningful money. Phil Galfond. He's he's excellent at this game. At least he was ten years ago, to those standards. But an online guy who comes out of nowhere, nobody knows who he is, and says, "Yeah, Galfond, I'll play you." Yeah, we'll have the six-figure side bet. The side bet being like when the whole thing's over, whoever is ahead of the other wins the side bet. And I'll play 100, 200 PLO. No problem. Let's do it. You got to think someone like that, who has the bankroll, who doesn't have the fear to do it, despite Galfon's reputation, has to be just an absolute crusher online. It's got to be someone who is just excellent at 100, 200 PLO to where he heads up PLO, he's not going to be afraid of this. Or he's somehow running a solver program in the background, which makes him an excellent PLO player. Because remember, this is not live. Galfine has no way to see what the guy's doing in the background, so who knows. Whatever it is, the guy approached it with no fear. And one must be concerned if you're Galfond of why is this unknown online guy willing to do this and how does he have the bankroll to do this and the answer is either he's great or he has a solver running in the background which makes him great artificially it's got to be one of these two because Galfond is getting destroyed and not just from running bad Galfond's been saying he's running bad but the truth is people watching the match are saying you know Galfon's not even running that bad. He's not running well, but it's not like he's just getting destroyed in, in, in every spot. He's It's just that Vanny Vitti has outplayed him every single day. They've played eight days of this challenge already, and he's outplayed him every single day. And most of these days, of the eight days, Vanny Vitti has, has really beaten him hard. After eight days of this and they have not even played uh, a quarter of the hands yet that they're going to play. They've agreed to 25,000 hands. They've only played uh, 5,700 hands. So fewer than a quarter hands have been played in this challenge. Veni Vidi is currently up... One million dollars. No, but about half a million. He's currently up 439,187 euros. That is a lot. <laughs> That's a lot of money. That is almost half a million U.S. dollars. It's 487,246 U.S. dollars that Phil Galfon is currently down in eight days of play, 5,700 hands. That is a lot. That is a lot. Even compared to the stakes being played, it is a lot. And you may wonder... Well, how's it going day by day? I, I told you already that he's been crushing him every day, but I'll, I'll break it down for you. Day one, Vinny Vitti wins 72,527 euros. Day two, uh, Galfond actually won very slightly, like, like a tiny, tiny, tiny win. It was pretty much break-even. Day three, Vinny Vitti won 84,000 euro. Day four, Vinny Vitti wins 17,500 euro. Day five, this was a bloodbath. Vinny Vitti wins 155,000 euros in one day. 
Day six, Vinny Vitti wins a tiny, tiny bit. It's pretty much break even. Day seven, Vinny Vitti wins fifty two thousand euro. And day eight, despite being up uh, almost uh, around a like hundred thousand euro for the day, uh, I, I believe Phil finished down uh, like like sixty one thousand euro. I don't have that in front of me right now. It was something like that. He's now down a total of four hundred thirty nine thousand eight hundred seventeen euro. 5,700 hands. And it's not even, it's not even like a... I think I fixed this power problem. It's not even like Phil Galfond is having really, really bad luck and this is going to turn around. Like, you, you've had this before where you've played poker and in the first hour you're getting crushed. And if you were to extrapolate for the six hours you plan to be there, if you multiply by six what you're down, you would have a tremendously horrible session, but you go, there's no way I can keep running this bad. It's not like that. He's he's not running that bad, and it's not like he had his big losses all in one day, and now he's, he, now he's starting to claw back. He's consistently losing day after day. Some days are worse than others, like that day five where he lost 155,000. Some are better than others, like day uh, two and, and six where he pretty much broke even. But look at the last two days. He lost 52,000 on day seven. He lost uh, like 61,000 on day eight. It's not getting any better. It's not like he's figuring out Vinny V's style and, and catching up to him. No. We've played eight days, and there's been six losses and, and two break-evens. Zero wins for any kind of uh, real money. So it's, it's pretty bad. Galphon's like 0-6-2 so far in, this, in these eight days. And that's with fewer than a quarter of the hands in the books. I think it's not even unreal, unrealistic to extrapolate this to the 25,000 hands and just multiply this by around four. And that's about what Galphon's going to lose, plus the side bet. Even Galphon himself admits that it is unlikely at this point that he's going to come back and win, which, which is a pretty big thing for him to admit less than a quarter of the way through. Yeah, I'm so far down, I'm not going to come back. Like, he's not even saying... This guy's run so well, I might run that well for the rest of the time and and catch back up. No. He's actually admitting that he thinks it's unlikely he's going to win this one. So that's going to be another 200,000 euro he has to pay Vinny Vitti because the side bet, believe it or not, you're going to love this one, the side bet was that Vinny Vitti was actually getting 2-to-1 odds to where if Galfond were to win, that Vinny Vitti would only have to pay him 100,000 euro and that if Vinny Vini wins, Galfon has to pay him 200,000 euro. <laughs> so, Vinny Vini was actually the underdog here, according to the side bet. Wow, a, a two-to-one underdog. Can you believe that? I think this bloodbath is going to continue. And people observing it just said, look, the, the, what they're seeing here is just Vinny Vini outplaying him. It just seems like Galfon doesn't have an answer for him. And Vinny Vitti is, is making a lot of tremendous hero calls where he's right. Like someone pointed out one where Galfon had, or Vinny Vitti had kings and nothing, nothing else on a like queen 9-9 something something board and called down and won to some pretty sizable bets. Like he just somehow read it that Galfon didn't have kings beat, which in Hold'em, not a big deal in PLO. That's a pretty big deal <laughs> because there's four cards. So you got to making the call down to the over pair is pretty tough in that game. But he did it and, and was correct. 
You just don't, you're not seeing that many times where, where Vinny Vidi is doing things like that and it turns out to be wrong and he's shooting off money. I wonder, and I, I mentioned this before, that I'm wondering if Vinny Vidi has a solver because there are PLO solving programs out there for heads up. I wonder if he has a solver in the background, maybe a friend quickly entering the hands as he plays that is advising him what to do. You don't know. He could even have it on a second computer or a virtual machine. There's a lot of ways he could be doing it to where uh, Galfon can't detect it, if he even has a way to detect it with the software. So this could be uh, something where Galfon's playing against uh, pretty much the equivalent of a bot. I'm not saying he is, but I'm also not saying he isn't. So ironically, where my concern was that you shouldn't play Galfon as his own site because you could be cheated, my concern at the moment is actually that Galfon is the one getting cheated by a bot. Again, I'm not saying it's happening, but this is... you got to wonder. So, let's say Galfon does lose like $1.5 million against Venny Vidi and then has five more of these to do. <laughs> and, and then he has to lose... Let's say he loses close to $2 million after the side bet. Let's say he loses like $1.6 million and then get the side bet and then you convert it to dollars. Let's say he loses a cool, a cool $2 million from the whole thing with Venny Vidi. First of all, can he afford it? Second, what about the other matches? Obviously, he's not afraid to play Bill Perkins, who's a recreational player. But what about everybody else who might be competent enough to either at least give him a run for his money and maybe beat him? Like some people are saying that uh, they think Jungle Man is probably a favorite over Phil Galfon. And that... uh, Perhaps Brandon Adams could be. This action freak guy is definitely thought to be a favorite, especially because it was perceived before this that action freak is better than Venny Vidi. So if action freak is better than Venny Vidi and Venny Vidi is just destroying Galfon, can you imagine what action freak is going to do? <laughs> that's, that's where Phil really has to worry. And in fact, Phil wouldn't even give odds to action freak. He gave odds to everyone else except for jungle man who they haven't decided yet what they're going to do. But, uh, Action Freak, it's a straight side bit of 150k euro. Now with Perkins, there's actually a 4 to 1 side bit where Phil actually is going to owe 1 million USD if he loses to Bill Perkins. And Bill will pay him 250k US dollars if he loses to Gelfond. And they're going to play either 50k hands or whoever loses 400k euro first, which if they were the case with Veni Vidi, it would be over already. But there's there's no stop point with the Veni Vidi thing. Though Phil can bail out, which I'll explain shortly. But Bill Perkins can... Uh, in that match, whoever gets to 400k, it'll just be over. And otherwise it's 50,000 hands, and then there's a side bet. Bill Perkins is probably not going to win that. So you have to think that Galfon's looking forward to at least recovering some of the money there. But look, uh, the best case scenario for Galfon against Perkins is 400k euro plus $250,000, which is around uh, $700,000. Well, look... He's already down about that to 
Vinny Vitti, if you count the side bet that he's almost surely going to lose. So that's, I don't think it's going to put a big dent in that. It'll put some dent, but not a, not a huge dent. And then Scalfon really turns it around against Vinny Vitti, and then he's got to play this action freak guy for 15K hands. And then he has to deal with uh, Jungle Man, with Chance Cornuth, and with Brandon Adams. Brandon Adams, they're not playing that much. It's going to be 40 hours of live play. And hands are much slower live. So I, I don't know how many hands they're going to get in, but even if you say, well, they'll get 50 hands an hour, that's 2,000 hands. So that's not going to be huge. It's 100, 200 uh, euro. Action Freak, though, they're playing 150-300. That's the only match that's uh, above 100-200. That could hurt. 15,000 hands of that. 25,000 hands, I said, for Vinny Vitti. Chance Cornuth are going to play 35,000 hands at 100-200. And that's, again, a 4-1 to one bet. That one he has to worry about a little bit. Bill Perkins is a recreational player, so you can see him losing. Yeah, you'd be surprised if Perkins wins this. But Chance Cornuth is he's you know, he's he's a good player. So I don't know how good he is in PLO. Apparently it's not believed he's anywhere near as good as Phil because he's getting four to one, but Phil's gonna have to cough up one million euro to Chance Cornuth if he loses. Which is a pretty big side bet. So even if he just loses by a tiny bit, he's gonna have to cough up a million. So this is really uh, a possibility that Phil Galfon is going to lose several million dollars on this. And when I say several, I don't mean three. I mean, I, I, he, he could lose uh, well over five million. He could lose seven million, eight million. Who knows? After all the side bets. I'm not saying he will. It would have to go really bad. And this is me even assuming he's not going to end up paying Perkin that, Perkins that uh, $1 million. If he, if he loses to Perkins, he's really in trouble. If, if Perkins managed to beat him, then Galfon's game just isn't there anymore, or his confidence has been shattered. And I, I think everyone's going to run the table on him, and he's going to go 0-6. And that, I, I'm assuming he's going to beat Perkins and recover about seven hundred k. But I, I think everybody else is, is going to really beat him. Maybe seven million, maybe five million is a better thing to. But look, he's going to lose about two million if he keeps on this pace. To Veniviti, with five matches left to play. So I don't know. I don't know where this is going to go. But he's going to really have a. a if he gets beat hard by Chance Cornuth too, an action freak, is he's going to be in a world of hurt. He's going to be in a world of hurt. The Brandon Adams is not enough hands to really be that far down. And Bill Perkins, he's probably going to beat. Jungle Man, they're only playing 7,500 hands. So I guess the 7 million is unlikely. But I, I, he could lose five. It wouldn't be that shocking for him to lose five overall in this whole thing. Now, he did say on an interview that there were investors. He didn't go into who they were or what piece of himself he has. But there are investors to this. To my knowledge, he did not say... I didn't hear the interview, but I was told this. To my knowledge, he did not say whether or not these are the same investors as those investing in Run It Once, which, by the way, should be known. 
if that's the case. He, it's, I don't think it's ethical, and he may not realize this, but I don't think it's ethical for the investors of Run It Once to be backing him here unless his opponents know this and are okay with it. If his opponents are aware of it and will still play, then great, that's their decision. But it should be known. Now, if these are just random investors who have nothing to do with the Run It Once poker site, then fine, he doesn't have to disclose who they are. But if it's anyone who has an interest in Run It Once, either employees there or investors to it, he should say that they have a piece of him, and that may give people pause before they play him. Though the way it's going so far with Veni Vidi, uh, definitely nothing is rigged for Phil. <laughs> If anything, it's proving that so far. Uh, Now let's go back to why he's doing this. He's doing this in order to promote Run at Once. And hoping that, even if he loses millions of dollars on this, that it will pay off. And this is why I suspect maybe the investors he's getting into this are the same investors to Run at Once, because the whole point is to turn around run it once from being a fail site. So you'd think that if they've invested in run it once, that they're going to be investing into something that is likely, in Phil's eyes, to increase the traffic and make run it once profitable finally, that this is something they'd want to do. If they're sitting around brainstorming, how do we make this work? How do we make this site not go belly up? And he says, I have an idea. Let's do a Dur challenge type thing, except we're actually going to play. And we'll do it on Run It Once, and it'll really, really promote the site. It'll pretty much make the site promote itself because everyone's going to want to see it and talk about it. And they go, oh, cool, yeah, yeah. And he's like, yeah, but I don't quite have the bankroll to do this. Can you guys back me? Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, and, and they do it believing that even if they lose in the matches, which you know he may win money in the matches, and even if they lose, then the, the site's going to make this many times over if it gets popular, so why not? But the reason this is flawed is because they are risking too much money. If if Phil was such a favorite over enough people in this to where it would be very unlikely he was going to lose much overall, even if he had one or two tough opponents, then this might be worth it. But there is too much of an unknown here that Phil might get crutched. That's the problem. He, Phil was a top PLO player in 2010. But in 2020, it's very different. And if you put the 2010 PLO Crusher against the 2020 PLO Crusher, the 2020 PLO Crusher is going to have a big edge. And for that reason, there is too much of a chance that something like what is happening now was going to happen. And the reason that's bad is that they could have spent the money on much more strategic marketing that really would probably result in a lot more uh, action on the site. For example, I'm just going to throw one out there. Elimination of rake for a while. Just say, we're not going to have rake anymore. Not permanently, but, but if, until April 1st, no rake. And then spread the word around. Pay a few publications like Poker News to write articles about how Run It Once has zero rake. No no catch. No, Just play with zero rake. People will come. Of course, they'll lose money during those months because they're not collecting rake. And they'll get traffic, and then they'll reintroduce rake. Say, okay, promotion's over. Thank you, everybody. Good night. But then people will stay because they like the site. 
provided they, they like the site, of course. But I don't think this is going to get a lot of people playing there, especially the Americans watching are of zero value because they can't play there. This is only for non-Americans. Then there's the other problem that the software product is not finished yet. There are no tournaments. There's issues that people just don't like about it. It's not a mature product yet. It's not even a complete product yet. And you don't spend that much money marketing in this way if people are going to possibly go there and say, yeah, this site kind of sucks, forget it. Now, lest you believe that I'm just assuming people will see the site and think it sucks. I was looking at 2 plus 2, and there was plenty of bashing from people who are just seeing Run It Once for the first time. These are not people who have been following it the whole way. These are people who just noticed it's there from this Galfon challenge. And a lot of them were bashing it. A lot of them were bashing the way the site looks and the way that... uh, it's hard to see what's going on. It's hard to follow the action. People said it's uh, a bad version of a, of a Euro site circa 2006. A lot of trash was being talked about the way the site looks. And if anything, you might be getting negative marketing from it because there's it's not a complete product. It's not a mature or complete product. Someone wrote on 2 Plus 2, imagine paying money to people who made this 2006 Tier 3 Eurosite software. Uh, the issue is not the cards, it's, it's everything else that's on the felt, referring to the virtual felt there. Someone said that the site is, quote, ass. There's just so much bashing of the software. People say, I can't believe Phil paid someone a lot of money to develop this. Someone says, I think it's because the cards are white with an outline against the the lighter green felt. You don't get a nice crisp edge on the cards. Uh, Phil was supposed to make a better Poker Stars. Instead, we got a worse Unibet. Come on, Phil. You can still write the ship. These are all different comments from different people, by the way. Not really feeling the UI, meaning user interface. Not enough contrast. I have a hard time figuring out what's going on. There's just so much criticism. Very few people in the 2 plus 2 thread about the Galfon Challenge saying, yeah, this is great software. Too bad I can't play on it from the U.S. Like, n- nobody's saying that. There's a few people going, yeah, it's better than you guys are saying. It's not that bad. No one's saying, oh, the software's great. Wish I could be there. Or I'm going to sign up now because this looks cool. So how much marketing value is he really getting from this? This would have been a great idea if he was likely to break even. But it looks like he's not. Now, the funny thing is, had he not agreed to play these two online guys, he probably would get away with this either making money or not losing that much, unless he ran bad. If he limited his play to a relatively small number of hands against Jungle Man, Chance Cornuth, Bill Perkins, and Brandon Adams, I think Phil would come out okay. So it's these two online crushers, these uh, this Vinny Vidi and Action Freak, who are going to be the big problem, as we already see. But I think Phil was underestimating them. I think a lot of people, and maybe Phil fell into this trap, they just assume that the unknown player isn't good. 
Some poker players just think, if I don't know who you are, and I'm a great player, you couldn't be better than me. And that's a, a big mistake to make when it comes to online players. There's a lot of really, really great online players who just are not known. So you can't ever make that assumption. Now, if you take an online player and move him to a live setting, he can be worse. It's, it's just a different skill set, a different level of comfort. But he's playing Veni Vidi in his own environment, online. So Veni Vidi loves playing online, and you see why. Again, it could be because he's using assistance programs that he's not supposed to be using here. You, you don't know. The big mistake on the part of Galfon, he should have been he should have been spending this marketing money elsewhere, which is badly needed. They're not spending on marketing, and this is this is the way they're doing it. And they should have held off even marketing it at all until they got the tournaments running on there. They have no tournaments still. It's also the whole thing was botched so badly. By the way, regarding getting out of these matches, his opponents at any time can quit. And just give up the side bet. You can't quit and win the side bet. But if you're willing to quit and lose the side bet, you can quit any time. And apparently Phil, I think, can do the same thing. But I doubt he will. Because it looks bad. One other thing. There wasn't a lot of upside to Phil doing this for his own reputation. It's kind of like, let's say... uh, you're in junior high school and you're in 8th grade and a 6th grader wants to fight you. Is there any upside to fighting the 6th grader? If you beat the 6th grader, everybody's going to say, oh, of course you're supposed to beat the guy who's a 6th grader. If the 6th grader beats you, it's highly embarrassing that a 6th grader just beat you up when you're in 8th grade. So there's no upside to this at all in that situation. On the junior high playground. If you're an 8th grader and a 6th grader wants to fight you. You should just. Not do it. (laughs) Unless you're 100% sure you're going to beat the guy. Then still probably not. People will say what the hell are you doing fighting a 6th grader. Similarly. Phil Galfond. Is known far and wide. In poker for being a great. PLO player. And a great heads up PLO player. Back in the day. So he doesn't have anything to prove. To the general public. Now people who are paying close attention. Will say. Well yeah he crushed back in the day. But the game's changed a lot. Can he beat today's crushers? Yeah there's those that say that. But the general poker public. Who doesn't really think that way. Just sees Phil Goffond as one of the greats of the game. And he doesn't need to keep winning to do that. So. If he beats Ven Vidi. 1993, he beats Action Freak. Are people going to say, wow, Galfon is the best ever? He's beating two online guys we've ever heard of? No. He was already thought to be good. He was he was already thought to be one of the best. And if he beats guys like uh, Bill Perkins, a recreational player, or Brandon Adams, who's been around a long time, but it's not known for his heads-up PLO prowess, or Chance Carnuth, who also isn't known for his heads-up PLO prowess, as far as I know. like, Is it going to matter that much? I guess beating Jungle Man might mean something, but to me this seems like something where if Phil just gets destroyed, then everyone's going to say, well, 
didn't realize it, but Phil Galfond is a has-been. Phil Galfond is a guy who was able to beat the 2010 incarnation of the game, but not the modern one, not the 2020 PLO. 2020 PLO, Phil Galfond is no longer special. He's been passed. He's a has-been. You can't even look up to his poker ability anymore. There's way better than him. That That's the narrative that would emerge from this if he gets crushed. Think of at the end of this Venny VD match, unless it really turns around, how much different people are going to view Galfond's PLO Ability versus before the match So that's kind of a stain on his legacy now There's, There was no upside to this so This whole thing was a mistake Especially against these two online guys If you asked me who's going to be the two strongest opponents I was going to say for sure the online guys In fact I felt foolish for not having bought action through poker shares on Venny Vidi because you could have gotten him as an underdog, and I knew he was going to beat Phil, and I, and I knew that uh, Action Freak's going to do it. I may actually buy Action Freak, but I have a feeling he's going to be a big favorite after this shellacking. One more thing before I move on here. I faced some criticism on the forum and from listeners of this show that whenever there's a Galfon topic, I seem to be covering the negative or covering bad things that are happening involving him. And that I seem to be getting some kind of pleasure out of it, some kind of perverse pleasure that Galfond is struggling. Who, by the way, posted a tweet saying, don't worry about me. I, I see people are worrying about me. Don't worry. I'm fine. Which he might be because, number one, the investors. Number two, he may have more money than we think. And number three, his wife, who was a star on Days of Our Lives for many years. If you look her up, Farrah Galfond, you'll see. She is said to have a lot of money. So maybe this isn't a big deal financially to him. But I take no pleasure in this. Unlike when scammers have bad things happen to them or fail in some way, or when people who have personally been nasty to me or hurt me in some way, and and I, yes, I take pleasure when they struggle. Phil Galfon's not in that category. He he hasn't scammed anybody. He's been a good citizen in poker. He was nice to me in our direct interactions. I've never had any problem with him. Some people think, well, I, I'm bitter because he didn't hire me to work at Run at Once. No, I when I emailed him to work at Run at Once, I thought the answer was probably no because they already were on the way with the project. And I assumed they probably already had everyone in place that they were going to have. I thought it was a long shot that maybe they're going to want to add me. But I, I knew he wasn't just constructing his team from scratch when I emailed him. So it wasn't like he picked someone else over me, which I still wouldn't be bitter about. If he, if he did, he did. But everybody was already picked before I email, emailed him at all. So why would I be angry about that? I'm not angry or bitter about that. I will tell you that had I been on board... And if I had enough say in the situation to where he'd listen to me, a lot of the fail that's occurring today would not have happened. But that's not unique to me. If he hired Cal Watt, same thing. If he hired many other people similar to me or similar to Cal Watt, same thing. I'm, I'm not the only one who could have prevented a lot of this fail. But he didn't, and that's the way it is. So is, is there some satisfaction I get in seeing that... Uh, had I been hired, I, I, I could have prevented some of this? I guess. 
I'm not enjoying it, but it was satisfaction meaning, well, yeah, look, uh, this is why when you start something like that, you either hire me or someone like me. But I'm not enjoying it. I'm not enjoying his failure with this. It's just something that I'm seeing happen. Am I rooting for him? No, but I'm not rooting against him. I, I don't know him well enough to root for him. I'm not a fanboy. Like, why Why should I root for him instead of Venny VD 1993? Why? I don't really know either of them. Maybe Venny VD is a great guy. I don't know. He could be a huge asshole. He could be a great guy. He could be somewhere in between. I, I don't know either of them personally. So I, I, I'm neutral on this. I don't care who wins. Is it an interesting thing to watch going down? Yes. That's why we're talking about it here. But if you're in poker, beware of the unknown online player. Maybe far better than you think. Topic number three. Well, we're not moving as fast as I hope we would. You want to call, by the way, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Let's see here. Well, we have, I was looking at many listeners we have. We have more than I thought we would. We are picking up people. It is 840 Eastern Time. Kobe Bryant, let's talk about him. I don't want to go about this too long. You've, you've heard so much about Kobe since he died a week ago. I'm sure uh, this will be just more than you want to hear, so I'll try to keep it short. I found out, I, I woke up to the news. I was sleeping af- after uh, playing in a home poker game the night before, and uh, I woke up to all these texts about it. A lot of people texting me. Yeah, it was it was pretty shocking as a longtime Lakers fan who didn't expect 41-year-old Kobe Bryant to be dying anytime soon. It, it was pretty shocking that he's just gone. We'll never see Kobe again. We'll never hear from him that he's just gone. And this is before we knew the details of who died with him. There were rumors that all four of his daughters died, which would have really been awful. Uh, turned out there was one daughter who died, which is still pretty awful. And seven others who were on the helicopter, which is very bad as well. But I, I heard Kobe died in a helicopter crash, and it's been confirmed. And you think, wow, that's just that's just strange. That's just weird. It's just someone you don't picture being dead anytime soon. So it wasn't like some older former athlete dying of a heart attack. This is Kobe Bryant, who was healthy. 41 and healthy. And he was such an important figure in L.A. sports. And the reason he was such an important figure in L.A. sports is because the Dodgers haven't won a championship in over 30 years. The Lakers have. The Lakers went through their own drought, not as long as the Dodgers, but that drought ended when Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant won in the 2000 season. And they had been together already prior to that for a few years, but uh, Kobe wasn't quite mature enough. Remember, he entered the league as an 18-year-old. And Shaq, uh, he was, but uh, Kobe had to improve. The team around Shaq wasn't good enough to win the championship until that season. And then you had some years there where, where the Lakers were the best and most dominant team. 
And those were the Kobe Shaq years. Then you had a few down years after Shaq left. Then Kobe managed to win another championship. But Kobe really represents to LA the he was a lifelong Laker and he brought a number of championships to major LA sports. And, and nobody else has done that in the last few decades. And he was only a Laker. He wasn't a free agent they grabbed who helped them win. This was someone who was a Laker from the time he was 18 years old until he retired. And making a whole lot of tremendous plays along the way. He played on the Lakers from 1996 to 2016. He played for uh, 20 seasons. And uh, he made the All-Star team 18 times, the All-NBA team 15 times. He is fourth on the all-time postseason scoring list. He's fourth on the all-time regular season scoring list. He led the NBA in scoring two different seasons. So he, he did a lot. He was one of the best of all time. Not the best of all time, not even close, but he was, he was one of the best of all time, and he was a very important figure to Los Angeles sports. And that is something that uh, can't be forgotten. And that's it, it affected the city of Los Angeles and Southern California especially. For that reason and for the fact that he was so young and it was unexpected. And it wasn't through any fault of his own in like it wasn't from doing drugs. It wasn't from steroid abuse. It wasn't for from irresponsible living, like like drunk driving or something like that. I mean, yeah, helicopters are more dangerous than, than driving, but not so much more dangerous where you say, oh, well, he's being reckless. Of, of course he died. Let's take a call here. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, Todd, how are you? And uh, who might this be? Oh, this is Ben from Australia. How are you? From Australia. All right. Hello. Very good. Uh, so are you calling about the Kobe Bryant topic? Oh, I wasn't, actually. I was talk- calling about the Aussie Millions. I could call back later if you like. Yeah. Why don't you, let me finish the, the Kobe Bryant topic. You can call back when it's done, and you can talk about the Aussie Millions. No worries. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. I hate to hang up on the Australia call, but I, just, I want to finish this. So... Kobe really represents in people's minds the last time L.A. sports was really successful from beginning to end. And he did it with Shaq. He did it without Shaq. He had five championships with the Lakers. He was a lifelong Laker. And people saw him as a very, very hard worker and very, very dedicated to his craft. This is someone who put tremendous effort in the off-season to stay in shape, to practice, to try to get better, to watch video. This wasn't a guy who says, okay, I'm a great player. Off-season is the time to relax. That wasn't him. 
he lived and breathed basketball his entire career. And people appreciated that too. Now that's not to say that Kobe Bryant was not without fault. And by the way, I was a big fan of his. I, 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 I loved watching him. It was amazing sometimes to watch what he would do in the fourth quarter, where he'd just take over. Lakers would be down 15. He just takes over. Even if his, the game up till that point wasn't that great for him, fourth quarter, just take over, bring the gap below 10, bring the gap even closer, and then in the final seconds makes a, a tremendous impossible three that you'd never picture he's going to make, and the Lakers win. And you'd say, how the hell did that happen? And it was amazing to see some of the shots he'd make because you'd have like three guys in his face and he'd take a shot which looks so terrible with people, the hands in his face and he's so far away and he's, he's falling at an awkward angle and you go, there's no chance that's going to go in. Swish, ball goes in, three-pointer. He was the best that I've ever seen of taking really, really crazy hard shots that are contested by more than one player shooting at an awkward angle and making it in the clutch. I've never seen someone who's better at doing that. Again, he's not the best player of all time. Is LeBron better overall than Kobe? Yes. They're different types of players. But overall, LeBron James uh, is a better player than Kobe was. LeBron James is also lasting longer. He's 35 and playing better than Kobe was playing when he was 35. But Kobe was an amazing player in certain ways. And for being a Lakers fan, to see things like that happening is very exciting. And you could never count the Lakers fully out unless they're really getting blown out because Kobe could come on the floor and do this. And I'm talking about during his prime, not during the final years, which I'll get to shortly. Now, Kobe did have some faults, many of which you probably know. He was selfish with the ball. And this started because he played against high school competition, which isn't very good. And you take Kobe Bryant against high school players, and of course he's far and away the best player, so much to where it doesn't make sense for him to pass to anybody. He's like a one-man team, and high school players can't stop him. So he goes directly from that to the NBA in 1996, And yes, he knows he's going to be facing tougher competition, but he's so used to just always having the ball and just always outplaying everybody that it's like a shock to his system to be playing against players who are so good that he can't do it all on his own, especially the 18-year-old version of him. In his prime, when he was really, really hot, yes, then he could do it on his own, but not not, uh, as an 18-year-old straight out of high school. With all the talent he had, he still could not outplay... NBA players as like a one-man team. And he was not playing particularly well. He was someone who showed a lot of promise, but he was doing a lot of stupid things on the court, and he was playing like someone who just came out of high school and has not adjusted to the fact that he's no longer far and away the best person on the court. And it took him years to learn to pass the ball. He had a big ego, He always believed, even as he got older, 
that the ball is best in his hands. And sometimes it would have been a lot better off if he passed it to someone who was in a better position to score than he was. And Phil Jackson, who was his coach for a number of years, was very frustrated with this. Phil Jackson wrote about it in his book. But how frustrating it was to coach Kobe because he just didn't like passing the ball. During Kobe's prime, not only did he become just a better player and uh, had more ability at that point, but also he was starting to learn to pass the ball and he was playing great defense. So he was doing everything. He's able to pass the ball. He still had the tremendous talent, still had the amazing ability to take over the game when necessary, make unbelievable shots. Even sometimes sharing the ball with teammates. So at one point in the middle of his career, he, he did become a complete player. And that's what allowed him to manage to win championships even after Shaq was gone. However, eventually his body betrayed him, as happens to all athletes. Kobe had been playing in the NBA since 18, and eventually his body wore down. And he's also, he wasn't as as big of a player. Like, you look at LeBron, he's just a bigger, more muscular guy than Kobe. They're different types of players. But Kobe, you're taking the beatings he did, year after year, day after day, eventually his body started to give out. So, starting around when he was 34, 35, there started to be a real serious decline. He was out with injuries. He was not playing well, especially when he was coming right back from injuries. He just wasn't quite the same player anymore. And uh, something he was criticized for was delaying the Lakers uh, moving on to the next phase post-Kobe. Because I knew, I knew that Kobe was never going to be second banana. Even as he got old, he was never going to be the old guy who was willing to step back and support the new, young, hotshot superstars. He was never, he was always going to be the guy. Even when he was... No longer able to be. And I knew the end of his career would be a disaster for that reason. Not only that, he had a reputation of being selfish and as not wanting to be number two to anybody. And that prevented any big stars from wanting to come to L.A. when Bryant was declining. Why would they? Why, why would they come to play with a severely reduced version of Kobe Bryant who still thinks he's Kobe Bryant in his prime? They wouldn't. They didn't. And the Lakers got worse and worse. The Lakers also gave him a ton of money at the end of his career as kind of like a thank you for everything he had done. Which I guess is nice, but it wasn't so nice because they can't spend unlimited money in the NBA. There's a salary cap. And they pretty much gave him about uh, $25 million a year starting from the 2013 to 2014 season when he was already 35 years old. They gave him that for two years. And that was thought to be a big mistake because even if they're trying to reward him, the problem is it's taking away what they could spend on other players. 
So the Lakers were, were bad those years. And then his last season, the 2015-16 to 16 season, he was just awful. He was, he, was, he was one of the worst regular NBA players in uh, modern history. It was a, a terrible season. Even he admitted, and this is someone with a huge ego, even he admitted that, he, that he's, quote, the worst player in the league right now. His body just wasn't there anymore. I, I'm not blaming him for the decline his body had. This was inevitable. Coming to that season, he was 37, and he was an old 37 with how much of a beating his body took all those years in the NBA. But the problem was he was still playing as if he were the star. And the Lakers were horrendous. And yeah, the final game of his career where pretty much everybody just let him take all the shots just to honor him. He scored 60 points, but that season was a fiasco. The Lakers won very few games that year. They won 17 games, lost 65. 17-65 the Lakers were that year. That should tell you how Kobe Bryant was as a player. So... The funny thing was that Kobe Bryant ended his career the same way he started. He started off as a player who was hogging the ball too much and believed his ability was greater than it actually was at the time compared to the other players on the floor. And that left him with a lot of flaws and had him taking a lot of shots that were going to miss. A lot of ill-advised shots. And that's exactly how his career ended. For different reasons. The, the beginning was inexperience. At the end, it was no longer having the physical skills he once had. But if you ignore those years, the beginning and the end, most of his career was excellent and very fun to watch, and he was a very memorable figure in L.A. sports history. And without Kobe Bryant on the team, who knows if there would have been any of those five L.A. Lakers championships starting from the year 2000. There probably would not have been any. Now what about the rape thing that was alleged in 2003? Had this occurred more recently, the public view of Kobe Bryant would be different. Not that rape was seen as okay in 2003, but... Ever since the Me Too movement of 2017, where famous men who are accused of uh, abusing women in a sexual manner are no longer tolerated, they, it, it's really a career killer and you become persona non grata, uh, he would be viewed very differently. But in 2003, while it was a scandal, and while it definitely hurt his marketing value at the time, and hurt his popularity and made a lot of opposing fans really hate him. He got past it because it was 2003 and because the victim, the alleged victim was not entirely sympathetic and that was fortunate for him. In the summer of 2003, it was said that Kobe Bryant raped a 19-year-old girl in his hotel room in Eagle, Colorado. 
and a criminal case against him was started. It supposedly happened at the lodge and spa at Cordillera. I think that's how you pronounce it. It was actually in Edwards, Colorado. In, uh, I guess the sheriff's office was in Eagle, Colorado. And the allegation was that he took her up to the room, that she went up there with him willingly, but that that he forced her to have sex with him when she didn't want it. That he uh, grabbed her by the neck and basically forced himself inside of her. Now, when he was arrested... He admitted that he did have sex with her. And he actually admitted that he was, quote, strangling her during the sexual encounter and that he held her from the back around the neck. And that strangling girls during sex is his, quote, thing. And that he's done this before with other women, but that the women were okay with it. Now, this may sound outrageous to you, but but believe it or not, then you may have encountered some women like this. There are a surprising number of women like this who enjoy that. It's not even like the the freaks of really, really unusual women. There's a a lot more women than you think that actually like when guys are kind of simulating strangling them or having their hands around their neck during sex. A lot more than you think. So it's, it's not shocking or hard to believe that Kobe has had sex, consensual sex with women who enjoy that and didn't consider it uh, anything bad when they did it. In fact, they may have actually liked that he did it. This girl was saying not only didn't she like it, that he just did it without her permission and that when she said no, that he just kept on doing it. And that he raped her. So both Kobe and the accuser agreed that they had sex, that he did that choking thing that was from the back but he said it was consensual and she said it was not so uh, Kobe Bryant did agree to submit to a rape test kit and a voluntary lie detector test I don't know. I, I never heard what the results of the lie detector test was. I don't know why I never heard about that. Maybe he never took it. I know he agreed to it at first. But uh, before the trial happened, the pretrial hearings were conducted, some things came out that made the accuser look uh, not entirely sympathetic. Number one, it was found that the underwear she was wearing during this encounter had semen on it, but upon analysis of the semen, it wasn't Kobe's. So this already made this girl look really easy, that this is someone who's having sex with different guys and has had sex with guys where she hasn't washed their underwear in between. So it, it was assumed that she probably had sex with some other guy uh, 
sometime very close to when it happened with Kobe. It was also found uh, on the uh, underwear, Caucasian pubic hair. So she had sex with some white dude very close to when she had sex with Kobe. There was a belief that she actually had sex with another guy after this, which would be highly unusual for a rape victim to go do. Usually rape victims feel like the last thing they want to do is have sex. Sex is traumatizing and upsetting to them until they get over the rape. That's that's almost always the case with rape victims. They don't just go back to a normal sex life right away. So Kobe Bryant's defense team said, look, if, if she went and had sex with some dude right, right after being with Kobe and didn't even wash her underwear, obviously this was not a traumatic thing. She's just making this whole story up. And there was uh, a co-worker who said that she saw this girl after the incident and that she was acting like nothing had happened, that there, the, the girl was not traumatized at all. Everything seemed fine and normal. There were rumors, I don't know if they were ever verified, that the girl was bragging to people that she had had sex with Kobe Bryant and even was claiming he had a big penis and was saying how she really enjoyed that. I don't know if that was really true, what she was saying that she was saying that, but that's that was a rumor that went around. So there were a lot of things that came out about the uh, this this girl that were not very flattering to her and also made her look like less of a victim. However, when they examined the girl, they did find evidence of vaginal trauma, which is common when a rape occurs. But Kobe's defense team said, hey, she's having sex with multiple guys in a short time. Yeah, that, that could be from that. How do you know it was Kobe? So they uh, when the whole thing was said and done, it was very confusing. Even I was confused. I was trying to decide from a neutral standpoint, an unbiased standpoint, as much as I could. I, I was a Kobe Bryant fan. I was a Lakers fan. I didn't want to believe he was a rapist, but at the same time, I was willing to believe he was a rapist if he was a rapist. And even I was having a hard time figuring this one out because there was just weird things going on like did the girl really have sex with the guy right after this was she really bragging about Kobe at at a party so I, I I couldn't figure it out and I had wondered maybe is it somewhere in between maybe is it that she went up to his hotel room and he started having sex with her, and then she thought better of it and said, no, 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 I don't want to do this. Or maybe she didn't like he was being a little rough with the strangling thing, and, and she said, no, I don't really like this. And he's like, no, no, this is what I'm into. I just did it. Which I'm not defending, by the way. You, you shouldn't. If a woman says she's not enjoying something, you got to stop. And that's always what I've done. I've, I've, every time a woman has told me something I'm doing she doesn't like, that's it. It's over. And I'll just switch to doing something else. So you can't, you can't just keep going because you feel like it if the woman doesn't want it anymore. And it's possible that Kobe did this and that, and that yes, that qualifies as rape, but it's, it's not quite the same thing. 
That's kind of a middle ground. And it's, it's still wrong, but it's, it's not quite as bad as, as what's being accused. But at the same time, he's not innocent. If I had to guess, I'd say something like that. So it could be a lot of different ways what happened there. But the truth is he got out of this because there was enough question about her. And I think she was convinced that a lot of this is going to be brought up at trial and that it's better not to go through the the criminal case. So she she dropped the charges and made some kind of settlement with him. And, of course, he was cheating on his wife when this was happening. So he he bought his wife a a super expensive diamond ring and uh, they moved forward. Because he did admit he was cheating on his wife. that, That he did admit. He also threw Shaq under the bus unnecessarily. He said... Shaq does this type of thing all the time, not referring to raping women, but having sex with women who aren't his wife. And he just pays them off, so we never hear about it. So that's a screwed up thing to say about Shaq. I don't know if it was true, but if, if Shaq really was banging women on the road, or, yeah, Kobe shouldn't be the one revealing this. This should be between Shaq and his wife. Kobe shouldn't be publicizing this. This, this has nothing to do with Shaq. Kobe... It was always a little bit weird. He was always someone who didn't quite have it all together socially. He always kind of behaved strangely in social type situations. And this was one of them. Like, I don't think Kobe like understood that you don't say that about your teammate. To him, it's like, wait, wh- why are they going after me here? Yeah, I cheated on my wife, but so does Shaq. Why is Shaq, why is no, no one give him a hard time? Come on, guys. What about Shaq? Like, he didn't re- understand... You don't say that. You think it would be obvious, but he, he seemed to not realize you don't say that. It's kind of a weird guy, Kobe Bryant. And you, you don't like to think that some of your sports heroes are kind of weird guys, but he was kind of a weird guy. Now, since then, he did attempt to uh, be a good citizen. He didn't get in any further trouble. By all accounts, he loved his four daughters very much. Uh, one of them is only seven months old and won't even remember him. Another one's like two years old, also won't remember him. Uh, then he had the daughter who died and the uh, an older daughter. But he was said to be very close to his daughters. And aside from cheating on his wife, which I don't know if he did again after this, after that he was pretty dedicated to her and he became a big advocate for women's basketball but then again some said that was somewhat done out of selfishness because he didn't have any sons so if he was going to see a family member continuing his legacy it would have to be one of his daughters so he was a big supporter of women's basketball but part of that was because his the one who died with him was thought to be the one most likely to be a future very good women's basketball player. So, looking back at Kobe, what do you do? I see people posting on Facebook, like, why are people glorifying a rapist? Why are they mourning a rapist? Just because he was good at basketball? And I understand their point. I actually, there's a person on my Facebook who has been a rape victim who is especially upset about this. She feels that uh, Kobe's a rapist and should not be lauded in any way. 
even if he died in, under tragic circumstances. And I, I can understand that, especially if you've been raped. I think you have to look at Kobe for the entire package, the entire picture of, of what he was. Very, very talented basketball player. Someone who had a little bit too much of an ego and was a little too selfish on the court, which harmed his career at the beginning and end, but he, his immense talent and drive to be one of the best is what helped him be as successful as he was during his mid-career. That he was kind of a strange guy. That he may have committed rape. He may have committed rape, which wasn't uh, quite like just forcing yourself on someone who doesn't want you at all, but, but may, have just have been guilt, may have been guilty of not stopping sexual activity when a girl asked him to, which is still very bad. So, you have to look. He was a flawed person. But he wasn't uh, someone who has to be admired for everything. And he isn't more deserving of mourning than anyone else, if you really think about it. There were seven other people who died on that helicopter besides Kobe and his daughter. And people don't really talk much about them. Yeah, you see their names mentioned, and sometimes you'll hear, oh, what about the other seven? But the, the real shocking thing is not that nine people died in a helicopter crash, which is still a pretty bad helicopter crash by itself, but it was that Kobe Bryant and his daughter died in it. That's, that's what everyone's thinking about. And it's because everyone felt like they got to know Kobe watching him all these years play for the Lakers. But you didn't really know him. You just felt like you did. And that's what you have to understand. And I think what really got people the most, people won't admit this, but what got people the most was that he was young, he was healthy, he was not doing drugs, he wasn't driving drunk, he didn't do anything to cause his own death. And he was a very familiar face that you thought you'd see for decades to come, and bang, one day he's wiped off the face of the earth. And people think, wow, that could be me. People who are not expecting their death anytime soon are looking at this and going, wow, what if tomorrow I die? What if I'm in some kind of terrible accident tomorrow and I die? Even if you're not going to fly on helicopters. What if I get in an auto accident? What if I'm a victim of violence? What if I have a surprise heart attack or stroke that kills me? And some people were really, really brought face to face with their own mortality from this because someone who was not expected to die for decades, a familiar face that you knew for ever since he was 18 years old and was expected to live for a long time, is now no longer with us and we'll never see him again. And that's what I think is bothering people the most. If Kobe Bryant can vanish from this earth so quickly and so abruptly through no fault of his own, so can any of us. And that is true. And that's also why you must prepare for that possibility at all times. For your family and everything else. If the life around you cannot go on after you die, then you've got a problem. 
because it has to. All right. That's how I feel about Kobe. There you have it. Switching to a completely different subject and one that's not being talked about in many places, but I think is an interesting enough story to cover here. Oklahoma actually has full casinos. You may not know that. Probably don't picture Oklahoma as a place you can go and play blackjack or craps. You can't sports bet there yet, but uh, actually, I don't. Th- maybe you can. I, I don't think you can. I don't think you can. But I know you can play blackjack, you can play craps, you can play poker, the slot machines, video poker. Oklahoma has real full casinos. And they get a lot of people from Texas going there. They get a lot of people from the Texas market. So Oklahoma actually has a somewhat booming casino market. But this may change because of something that's going on there right now, a controversy that's happening involving the Indian tribes who are running the casinos. And the governor of Oklahoma, who feels that the games they're offering now are illegal as of January 1st. So here's what's happening. There is a compact between the Indian tribes who are running these casinos and the state of Oklahoma that was expiring on January 1st of 2020. And this has led to a lot of controversy. And I will read the segment which is causing all the controversy. This compact shall have a term which will expire on January 1st, 2020, and that at that time, if organization licensees or others are authorized to conduct electronic gaming in any form other than paramutual waging, uh, wagering on live horse racing pursuant to, to governmental action, of the state or court order following the effective date of this compact. This compact shall automatically renew for a successive additional 15-year terms, provided that within 180 days of the expiration of this compact or any renewal thereof, either the tribe or the state acting through its governor may request to renegotiate the terms of subsections A and E of Part 11 of this compact. Nice and clear, right? If you're confused by this, don't worry. I am too, and so is everybody, and that's the reason for this current controversy. So this was from back in 2004, this was written. And they had this date that this compact was going to expire that seemed so far off back then. January 1st, 2020, well, 2010 wasn't even closed back then. Well, that date has come. So it has expired. There's no question. But the question here is whether it has auto-renewed. And the Indians are saying, yes, it has auto-renewed. It says right here, the compact shall automatically renew for successive additional 15-year terms. So that should mean, if you take their word for it as far as what this means, that this will be good until January 1st, 2035. But hold on, says the governor of Oklahoma. That is not true because of this other part, stating that... It will only renew that provided that within 188 days of the expiration of this contact, of this compact, or any renewal thereof, meaning that within 180 days of January 1st, that either the tribe or the state may request to renegotiate the terms of the compact. So what the governor is saying is that this is no longer good on January 1st. 
So if neither side does anything, then it will auto-renew. But between January 1st and June 30th, the first uh, 180 days, or somewhere June 30th, uh, somewhere in late June, January 1st and somewhere in late June, whatever 180 days is, approximately half a year, that both sides have the ability to say, stop, this is no good anymore, we are rejecting the renewal, we must renegotiate now. And that if either side refuses to renegotiate, that the whole compact dies. So it was binding until January 1st as written, from 2004, whenever they signed it to January 1st, 2020. And then between January 1st and 180 days from then, either side can demand a renegotiation and that if that renegotiation is refused or gets nowhere, then the whole thing falls apart and does not auto-renew. But if that nobody says anything for that 180-day period, then yes, it auto-renews for for 15 years. That is what the governor is saying. The Indian tribes are saying, no, that's not how it reads. It's just saying it's renewed. And we don't have we don't have to discuss anything with you. So, the reason this is happening is because the state of Indiana wants to renegotiate. They don't like the compact they have, and they felt that this was the time to get that changed. So here's here's what the matter is with that, because as I said, it's complicated. And basically, the state is feeling they're not getting enough of the profits. And they're feeling that uh, they are getting the shaft compared to what the industry standard is. They feel that the Indian sta- the, the standard is uh, like 25%, and that currently the state is getting about 4 to 10% of the profits. The governor said they want to continue getting the best deal in the country and pay 4 to 6% when the market is closer to 25%, so that's what this is all about. And there's currently a court case going on about this. So there's a lawsuit filed by the Chickasaw Choctaw and Cherokee tribes on December 31st, 2019 arguing that their gaming compact automatically renewed on January 1st and that's that. They don't have to do anything further. They just uh, Everything that was written in there can auto-renew without any further action on their part until 2035. That's it. Matter over. Governor saying, nope. We have the right to demand that we renegotiate or the whole thing will not get renewed. And it's all about that sec- section I read to you, which, as you heard, is not entirely clear. It does not explicitly say that if there's a refusal to renew this, uh, to, to negotiate, that it'll become null and void. But it also doesn't. It also says something about the renegotiating, and that it's quote provided that this renegotiation can occur for 180 days. So it kind of does sound like that they are right. That's kind of what I'm... I think the government... When is this they? I mean the governor. It, it kind of does sound... Like it wasn't written well. But it does sound to me 
like they're right about this this gaming compact. So I think that the state of Oklahoma is correct, and that's the whole way it was written for the first place for this reason. That both sides had the ability to, after, after January 1st, 2020 came, which was more than 15 years after it was signed, that both sides had the ability to say, hey, you know, we don't like this anymore. Things have changed. 15 years later, things have changed. This sucks. We don't want to auto-renew. But it was put in there that if neither side says anything for almost six months, that, yeah, just it'll just auto-renew at that point. This could have been avoided if it was written more clearly. All it had to say... See, this is one of these things where they, they attempt to write this in legal language, and then by doing so, when it's not written well, then it ends up ambiguous. But not a lot of times if there's an ambiguity, it goes to whoever is claiming that it's more general than specific. Usually it, the, the way the law works is that the most vague interpretation is what is considered to be law. But here there isn't really a vague interpretation. It's a, There's something specific said. It's just a matter of what that means is the problem. It's not that something's left out. It's just that what is said there is not written well. Again, it says... It shall automatically renew for successive additional 15-year terms provided that within 180 days of the expiration of the compact or any renewal thereof, either the tribe or the state acting through its governor may request to renegotiate the terms of subsections A and E, blah, blah, blah. Okay, but what if they don't? What if one side refuses to renegotiate? That's like not there. But it does say that it will renew provided that they one of the two requests that may request it. So it's, it's kind of a weird thing. It's not saying it renews provided that someone renegotiates, but it says provided that they may renegotiate. So what does that mean? <laughs> it, it's, it's like saying, um, I will give you $10,000 tonight, provided that you may go out at 3 a.m. and get a hamburger and then you go, well, what does that mean? Does that mean I have to go get a hamburger to get the $10,000? So you go, no, no, no. It's that I may get a hamburger. Okay, but what do you mean provided that you may get a hamburger? How does that make any sense? Like, th- that's exactly what's happening here. Provided that they may renegotiate. What it needed to say was this will automatically renew 180 days from January 1st, 2020, wherever that date is. Provided that neither side demands a renegotiation of the terms. If either side demands a renegotiation, the auto-renewal will not occur. That's the way it should be written. Then it would be 100% clear, and nobody could be arguing at this point. This poorly written section has now caused this court case to occur. Now, what does Indiana want? Or, oh, no, oh, I've been saying Indiana, I'm in Oklahoma. Sorry about that. What does Oklahoma want? Oklahoma wants all of the Class 3 games to be removed from all Oklahoma Indian casinos until a new compact is established. That's pretty bad because most Class 3 games are 
games that you would associate with being casino games. Blackjack is a class 3 game. Slots is a class 3 game. Craps is a class 3 game. Roulette is a class 3 game. Video poker is a class 3 game. All of that would be gone if the Oklahoma governor gets what he wants. So he's asking for them to remove this until this new compact gets signed. And they're saying, no, we're not signing anything. We're sticking to the old one because it's auto-renewed. And seeing that there was this dispute coming up the day before January 1st, December 31st, they filed a lawsuit. So this is tabled right now. Nothing, no action is going to be taken right now. But we will see with the court's rule. Kind of an interesting situation. It's possible all that stuff will disappear from the Oklahoma casinos for a while. Now, keep in mind, both sides want the Oklahoma casinos to continue. This is kind of a game of chicken in a way. The governor is saying, you better do what we want or we're going to have all this removed. and You guys are going to have to shut down for a while or be pared down to very little. And the tribes are saying, oh, no, you're not. We're not renegotiating. F you. We're taking you to court and nothing's going to be removed. But in reality, both sides want these casinos to continue as is. Just the state wants more of the profits. Who do I think is right? I actually think the state's right, both in how it's written and also if the tribes are really paying much less than the industry standard to the state, then yes, the state is very reasonable to demand a renegotiation. That's exactly why it was written this way. So in 2020, they could revisit it and say, hey, this isn't a good deal for us anymore. Either side could. So Indian game is not going to end in Oklahoma, but it might be suspended if the courts rule in the state's favor. I want to get to the Matt Berkey thing. Matt Berkey went on some kind of YouTube show. I don't know what you call it. It's not, it's not, it's not a vlog. It's not a podcast. It's, it's a YouTube show about, I guess, poker. I've never heard of it before. It is called The Infinite Game with Nick Howard. I guess it is a vlog. It's, it's called a, a vlog cast. And, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if this is associated with, uh, you know what, this actually may be Matt Berkey's show. I don't know. I'm confused here. It says, The Infinite Game with Nick Howard, Solve for Why, v- Vlogcast 34. So this does seem like it's uh, it's Matt Berkey's own program. It kind of seems like he's being interviewed. That's why I'm confused. Uh, it says, Nick Howard is back for this week. Solve for Why, Vlogcast. Let's talk with Matt Berkey about mindset, starting business from scratch coaching for profits and playing the infinite game of life. Okay, so I guess the infinite game is the title of this one. I see. Okay, I, I, I'm understanding now more. I, I Just until now, I didn't really understand what this was. I had just seen a piece of it, and I assumed this was just some other guy's show. It's not. It's Matt Berkey's show. And it says, each week, high-stakes poker pro Matt Berkey takes a deep dive into diverse poker topics with co-hosts Christian Soto and Nick Howard. So this is one of his co-hosts. This is almost like Trader Ruski interviewing me. All right, with that said, 
that I've discovered when I'm playing you guys. See, I, I, I threw all this together pretty quickly once I got to the secret location, so forgive me. I'm not going to edit this either. I don't have time to edit this after the show. So you're hearing exactly the live show I did. But uh, at the 4410 mark, this was the one on January 27th. Again, it's called The Infinite Game with Nick Howard. You can search that on YouTube. Go to the 4410 mark, and you can hear where he talks about me. And he describes pretty much everything I mentioned last week. I don't know, but uh, we released a student edition of Poker Out Loud. And uh, one of our followers was like blowing it up, saying how great it was. And uh, Todd Whitless, um, who hosts—I'm going to get it wrong—I think it's Poker Fraud Radio. Um, basically, like jumped in the thread and was like something to the effect of, "I—I uh, I don't know anything about Softwise product." And he didn't even watch the video that she was talking about. He was just like, "But by the description of their Twitter profile, I could just tell that they're or that I hate them already." And she was just like, you know, maybe you should give it a chance, yada, yada, yada. And he like verbatim said what the what our tagline is or whatever. And it says something about like creating holistic strategy. And he's like, you have to admit that that's super pretentious. It's like, first of all, I think that uh, unfortunately, people misunderstand language a lot. Like, I think people assign the word holistic to like healers of sorts which is a bullshitty industry in, in a lot of ways, you know, like holistic healers mm. that are going to, you know, fix your chi and hit you with some quartz <laughs> or, or whatever. Uh, but that's not what the word means, right? It just means complete. Mm. Um, and so like, I just jumped in the thread. I was like, listen, man, uh, we would love to have you observe an Academy anytime you want. If you still think the product's trash, by all means go public with it and tell everybody. But if you, if you like what you see, you know, I'd appreciate you just being honest. Uh, I, it would be nice if you had the full context, basically. And, you know, he was cool about it. He sent me a DM. He was like, I'm not in Vegas, but if, if ever I am, like, I'll stop through whatever. And then, you know, there was the whole uh, the, the whole thing with uh, BitB Cash or whatever. And it just sucks whenever the, the online versus live world kind of collide like this, where it's like, why don't you post your graph? Why don't you uh, show more data? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? It's like, well... Because I can't, you know what I mean? It's like, I could show you what my hourly is in the 200, 400 to 1K, 2K, but it's going to be over a sample of like a thousand hours where the blinds are constantly in flux. Uh, Let me stop this here. He's talking about someone else now who is questioning his results. So not really important here. So first of all, he called me like Todd Whitless, which I, I, you know, look, people mispronounce my name all the time. You can laugh at that. Oh, Todd Whitless. He wasn't even trying to insult me or anything. It's just, he really thought that was my name. People just don't know how to pronounce Whitellis when they see it. They don't know how to write it either. People always want to put an H in my name. They always want to write W-H-I-T-T-L-E-S. People love spelling my name. I always say my first, middle, and last name, none of them have any H in it. If you write an H with my name, you've made a mistake. But he said uh, Todd Whitless. <laughs> then he said uh, Poker Fraud Radio. So okay, he does. He doesn't know my name that well or the show's name that well. But at least he mentioned us in some way. Um, what the way he described it was pretty correct, and he did concede that holistic is kind of taken to mean something different than what he's trying to describe it as. And I think that's a branding mistake. If, if he's acknowledging, it's, it's one thing if he's saying though this Todd guy is crazy. You know, he's he's 
wrongly picturing holistic to mean this, but most people think it means this. He admitted most people hear the word holistic and they and they picture some some new age weirdo trying to uh, sit there going hum hum and trying to uh, trying to uh, all, all these new techniques to become one with themselves. You know that that's I'm not saying that's the definition of holistic, but if when you hear holistic, you think of things like that. Okay, so he's saying here that he understands why he was perceived that way. So, okay, he's the one who does the branding. Don't, don't, just don't call it holistic. Even, even if you think that the actual definition of holistic does describe your course here, if, if the public is going to look at that and see it as something it's not, then it's, it's poor branding. You, you just, just take out that word. The truth is, if he took out that word, I wouldn't have said anything in the first place. It was the word holistic. He's right that the, the word holistic is what made me jump on it. Is it a big deal? No. I was just kind of joking around there. Do I care that he calls his uh, his uh, training program, I forget what it's called, the, the Solve for Why? Do, do I care that he's calling that a holistic experience? No. I don't. He can call it what he wants. And those that have watched it, they've watched uh, pieces of it that they've made available to be seen on online, have thought highly of it. And... Uh, Look, if, if the descriptions I've heard of the course, it seems pretty good. Like, I, I'm not even going to say he doesn't have a, a course that has any value, because it seems like a pretty good course. I'd have to watch it in person or see more of it to really judge it. But from what I know of it so far, it's it seems like a good course. And I also have heard good things about him personally. And he did good work with Apostle situation. So I can't criticize the guy here, but I still think it wasn't the best branding. (laughs) And I wasn't being totally serious. I was just messing around on social media. It kind of blew up a lot bigger than I wanted it to. I didn't mean to cause this controversy. Sometimes I say things and I mean to cause a controversy. There are times where I I will say things and I'm actually trying to get a response. I'm trying to get attention. I'm trying, not, not so much on me, but like I'm trying to get attention to something. I'm trying to get people to react to something that I think should be reacted to. But this wasn't one of them. This was me just kind of like semi-trolling, but not even like in any kind of mean way. But they, they showed my tweet up on the screen and everything. But whatever. It's not a big deal. And he said I was cool about it at the end, so... I think we're past it. I, I just wanted to play that clip because there it was, and I, I guess it was his own show. I thought he was—I thought he was a guest on some other show. I—I I, I got that all confused. Okay, let's move on to something I'm hopefully less confused with, and that is with the Bachelor contestant and the money she won, and what has happened to it. So, if you remember on a previous show that we had recently, the. DraftKings Millionaire Maker event was won by a female who was once a contestant on the show The Bachelor. And this is Jade Tolbert, who was known as Jade Roper on The Bachelor before she married a contestant on The Bachelorette. And that's why her name changed to Tolbert. But uh, both of them were playing on DraftKings and they had lineups on DraftKings. This is fantasy football, daily fantasy football. 
they both had lineups that were correlated to where they weren't going to have much duplicates, and it allowed them to circumvent the 150-entry maximum and gave them an edge because it was pretty much having three, like having 300 unique entries instead of 150 because they each entered 150, making sure not to have much overlap in the entries they put in, and that gave them collectively a much higher chance to win. I'm not saying this gave them a lock to win the whole thing. They still had to get very lucky, but they did, and she was the one who won. So uh, there was Tanner Tolbert, and she's uh, Jade Tolbert now that she's married to him. And there was all kinds of evidence that this really was, at the very least, collusion, or very possibly it could have been just Tanner doing everything, just her account was in name only, and it was really Tanner doing it all. In fact, there was a piece of evidence that really suggested that because one of Tanner's friends congratulated him for winning after she won, because if he was operating both accounts, it was him winning. She was also never known to have any ability or interest in daily fantasy sports. So it really does look like this was his thing and that he just signed her up because it gave him a better chance to win with 300 entries instead of 150. Yeah, he had to pay for those entries, but he got to enter more lineups than anyone else could. I'm sure others were cheating this way too, but that's not the point. Point is, this was against the terms. It was very clearly against the terms. They were cheating. And this came out because they were so stupid to have this uh, public that they won. So here were two people that had appeared on national TV and were known somewhat to the public. They're not super famous, but enough people knew them both. She had her picture up there to where someone noticed right away, oh, I, I know who this is. This is that girl Jade Roper from The Bachelor. So that right away brought attention to it. They also had to think the DraftKings would notice this and probably publicize it. Hey, look who won. It's kind of cool for them, provided nobody was cheating. It's kind of cool for them that someone semi-famous won their contest. That's good publicity for them, which became bad publicity. So they had to figure they weren't just two average Joes who could get away with this. And then the idiocy with having his friend brag on Twitter that he had just won... If you're going to do this crap, and if you're already semi-famous, you really want to keep quiet who you are, get as little publicity as possible, and have everyone who knows about this keep their mouths shut. But they did not approach this in a very intelligent manner. I don't, I don't think he thought it through. I just, thought, I just think he's like, oh, sweet. I'll enter 150 for me, 150 for my wife with different lineups. Give, it, give me a better chance to win. Then he sees it's looking like a good chance he's going to win, gets excited, calls one of his buddies, like, man, I'm about to win a million bucks, about to win a million bucks. Yes, we did it. We won a million bucks. Yes, 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 we did it. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. It's on Jade's account. Oh, my God, I can't believe it. We won it. We won it. We won. One million dollars. And his friend's like, sweet, man, sweet. And then he announces on Twitter, I'm so excited for my buddy. He writes, oh, my God, congrats to my boy, Tanner Tolbert, 05, winning the fucking Millie Maker. Let's fucking go. You can tell this this friend of his was excited for him. Oops. You don't say that on Twitter when your friend won it by multi-accounting. So we talked about that already. But there's a new development that 
it has been taken away that Jade Talbert is going to be receiving zero point zero. It was decided almost three weeks after the win that they are not going to get anything. DraftKings has decided to update the standings for the several contests, their statement said. All customers affected by the updated standings will be notified directly. It is our general policy not to comment on such matters. So what do they mean by that? They didn't directly say that they disqualified them, but then you look at the standings, and all of a sudden she is gone. The second-place winner has become first. The third-place winner has become second, etc., etc. The new winner was someone who played as SPCLK36, who was now listed as the million-dollar winner. So happy ending that the cheaters did not get anything? Well, wait a minute. What about that lawsuit? She hired a prominent attorney to represent her. How can this so quickly be resolved? Well, there are some who are observing the situation who think this is not what it appears to be. There is some speculation that if this were to become a long dragged out court case, there become all kinds of negative ramifications for all involved, that it would keep highlighting what cheaters these two were and bring a lot of resentment towards them, and that DraftKings not only would be getting bad publicity about cheating on the the, the Daily Fantasy uh, sports contest they're having and making people not want to play, but that also that it could interfere with uh, them from some uh, regulatory standpoints. So there's some belief that they wanted this to be over as soon as possible. But they couldn't just say, hey, we don't care. She wins because it was pretty damn clear to everybody that there was cheating here. So what do they do? They've got this lawsuit against them if they don't pay. They could probably win it, but if there's this long drag drag that lawsuit, that it could interfere with their attempt to go public, which they are. It could uh, have all kinds of possible negative implications with uh, their entry into the sports betting market. They, they just they just don't want it. It's bad publicity. They don't want it. But at the same time, they can't just pay these cheaters and declare them the winners. So there is speculation that the reason this ended so soon, with this prominent attorney involved and everything like that, the reason this ended so soon and is pretty much being put behind themselves this whole thing for DraftKings. The reason that what's what's being speculated here is that they were paid the million. But they were told that they have to not acknowledge that they were paid the million. They have to pretend that the million was confiscated, but they really get it. And then DraftKings kicks in another million and pays everybody else as if they were not actually in the pool. So that's uh, what's being assumed here. I'm not saying this is surely what happened, but given how quickly this ended, it is being assumed that DraftKings, which is a huge company, thought, you know, for a million bucks, if we can get out of this whole mess and just end it to where no one's going to talk about this anymore, then it's totally worth it. Totally worth it. So let's give Jade her million, 
have her agree in writing to shut her mouth, that it's a confidential settlement, and that she has to agree that she is not going to dispute that they got zero, and that they're just going to secretly kick in another million. Which is funny, because they're secretly kicking in another million of their own money to make this right for everybody else. They can't even give themselves credit for it. Because they don't want the appearance that you can cheat and still get paid, and DraftKings will just add extra money to the pool to make it right. They definitely don't want people thinking that, nor do they want that precedent established. But this is the way they buy their way out of a long legal dispute, which will do nothing but hurt them. Because think about it, if this went all the way through, this would hurt DraftKings in several ways, plus the other side would probably lose. So everyone would really lose in a long legal dispute. That's the funny thing. Like, I think all sides would actually lose. So I think these assumptions are probably correct or close to correct. So it's not exactly what it appears. They were disqualified, but they really weren't disqualified. 775 fraud 55 775-372-8355. My Aussie friend can call in now if he'd like. I didn't forget about you. But please call in if you'd like to uh, talk about the Aussie millions. I'm not sure what you want to say about the Aussie millions, but you can call in and talk about it. If we lost you, you can call in next week. I want to tell you about how to get Caesar's Diamond in a secret way. Secret, but not illegal or against any rules. That's the best, isn't it? You can't get in trouble, but it's something that very few people know. So we've discussed before the Founder's Card. Now, before I get to this new secret way, the Founder's Card is not a secret way. A lot of people know about the Founder's Card. You get that, and then once you're a paid member, not a trial member, once you're a paid member to the Founder's Card, you will get automatic Caesar's Diamond for that year. There was some concern that Founders and Caesars were not going to come to terms for 2020 and that you would not become Diamond. Well, that has been resolved. Founders has just announced on January 31st, just yesterday now, that they did come to terms with Caesars, but they came to terms so late that people may not get their Diamond status for 2020 until February 6th. So if you do have the Founders card and you're not Diamond right now, don't panic. Wait till February 6th. You should be dying by then. And that's because the negotiations with Caesars went to the very last minute. Because basically they're paying Caesars for this. And Caesars, they, they had to come up with whatever rate was going to be paid for this. So the Founders card still works. The trick where you sign up for the Founders card on a trial, don't pay anything, and then cancel after a few weeks, and then wait for them to invite you back, and discount it down to two ninety five dollars a year. That's a way to save a hundred bucks because normally it's three ninety five. You can get it discounted down to two ninety five by doing the sign up for trial, cancel after a few weeks, and wait for them to invite you back. Trick. So that's something you can do. There's a little delay, of course. You're not going to get your dime until you actually pay for it. They're not that dumb. But there's a way to get diamond, which is told to me that I think is going to work. No guarantees, and you can do this for ninety five dollars provided that you can get approved for a certain credit card. I don't know how stringent the approval process is, but I'm going to tell you about it, and you can give this a shot, and please let me know if you try this, if it works or not. Okay, this came from a listener to the show. So there's a credit card called the Amex, that's for American Express, 
H Honors Surpass card. S- surpass. S-U-R-P-A-S-S. Exactly as it sounds. The Amex H Honors Surpass. H Honors is Hilton Honors, their rewards program for the Hilton chain of hotels. So Amex H Honors Surpass. It has a $95 annual fee, this card. And when you sign up for this card, you get to be Hilton Gold. Hilton Gold is their... It's a tier level, a high tier level they have in H Honors. I think it's like the third one up. So big deal. You get Hilton Gold. Why am I telling you this? Well, Wyndham, which is another hotel chain much smaller than Hilton, Wyndham does status matching. And Wyndham will give you their highest tier diamond if you are a Hilton Gold. You may say, who cares? I'll tell you why I should care. Because Caesars has a status match program with Wyndham. And provided the Caesars sees that you're a Wyndham Diamond, they will match you to a Caesars Diamond. So, as you see, if you get approved for the Amex H Honors Surpass card and get it Hilton Gold, you can match it with Wyndham Diamond, which then can be matched with Caesars Diamond. I think this is very likely, because I know for sure the Wyndham and Caesars Diamond match exists because I just did it, but not the way you think. I actually went from Caesars Diamond to Wyndham Diamond. I already was Caesars Diamond, and I renewed my Wyndham Diamond that way. And if you wonder how to do this, well, just go to Vegas Casino Talk and go to the Total Rewards and MLife subforum. And if you look for the Wyndham thread, which is... I think on page two. Yeah. The Caesars Rewards and Wyndham status match to search for Wyndham on the page. It's kind of in the middle of page two in the in the Total Rewards and M Life forum on VegasCasinoTalk.com, which is my other forum. And you'll see how to match your diamond at Caesars to Wyndham Diamond or your Wyndham Diamond to Caesars Diamond. I know that the Wyndham Diamond, you get matched instantly. I think the other way, going from Wyndham to Caesar's Diamond, I think there's a few days you had to wait in between. So give it some time. But I know that match does exist. And I think the Hilton Gold to Wyndham Diamond match exists. So I think this guy's right. And he claims he did it. The... Amex H Honors Surpass also has some other benefits, especially if you go to Hilton properties, that are worth it anyway. For example, Hilton Gold can be pretty valuable. So that by itself may be worth the $95 to you anyway. And there's some other benefits in the card which are decent. There's even some, uh, like a bonus to the card. If you spend a certain amount in the first three months, that will get you something pretty good. So it's a pretty good card anyway. Now, the only question, which I, I don't know, I don't know for sure, the only question is, I'm not sure if you can do this consecutive years. I think you can, but I'm not sure. So if you do this this year, this may not work for 2021. But for sure, if you do it the first time, well, I should say for sure, but I think if you do it the first time for 2020, it should work because I know for sure the diamond between Wyndham and Caesars match back and forth. And I think there's a, a pretty good chance that the Wyndham diamond also matches with Hilton Gold, as the guy said. Because the guy who told me is pretty reliable here. I haven't checked on this, 
but I'm I think you can do it. I know you could at one point. That match definitely existed at one point. The goal, the Hilton goal to the Wyndham Diamond. I think it's still there. You can Google it and check on it. I didn't go that deep into this, but it, it, basically you can get Diamond, right? If you want it for the World Series of Poker, I think I, as long as you can get approved for that card, for $95, you can be a Caesars Diamond. So check it out. You may want to do that instead of the Founders card. And let me know if it works. You will not get in any trouble. You will not get banned from Caesars for this. You won't have any negative consequences. This is totally allowed to do status matches. That's why they're here. Nor does Caesars care that much about Diamond. When I say care, they don't really concern themselves how you got to Diamond. They're not going to go, ah, 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 you didn't play. You're a fake Diamond. No. Like, they're not going to get comps above the diamond basic benefits, but at the same time, they're not going to question it and downgrade you back. It's not like seven stars where they are starting to scrutinize how people got there and deny the seven stars to them. Diamond's an automatic thing. They don't really care. Nor is any of this against the rules. Just wanted to let you guys know about that. Thank you to the listener who tipped me off about that. By the way, um, I this this could change any time, so do it quickly if you want to do it because this could any of this could change any time. Now, once you have the diamond, you'll have it for sure until January thirty first, twenty twenty one. But if you don't act quickly and they change something here, then this may go away. So I'm not saying it's going to change next week, but it's something that could change at any time. Talking about Bill Perkins. Bill Perkins is a rich guy who lives in the Virgin Islands. He is a recreational poker player. He ran something called the Thirst Lounge, which was some kind of poker challenge where people are invited to go live there in the Virgin Islands at this house he has and play poker, and he stakes them. I forget all the details with it, but... uh, He's a recreational player who really likes poker. He has a lot of money, and he he likes staking people. He likes just being talked about in poker. He's someone who's kind of buying his way into notoriety in poker, which, which is fine. I'm not criticizing that. He has money. He can spend it the way he wants. But that was pretty much all I knew about him. This week, I learned a little bit more about the guy. And, and I started looking more into him because he's playing... Phil Galfond, eventually, in this Galfond Challenge. And he's the one that Galfond has the best chance to beat, being a recreational player. So I looked more into Bill Perkins, and of all things, I ended up in a Twitter discussion back and forth with several people, kind of a Twitter debate, where he was one of the people against me in the debate. It it was a cordial debate. Nobody was calling each other names. It wasn't hostile, but it was a a disagreement on, on a certain topic which is related to the topic I'm about to talk about with Bill Perkins. So Bill Perkins, it turns out, is a big advocate for spending what money you have while you're still alive. He wrote a book about this called Die With Zero, and it's exactly as it sounds. The book he wrote 
is called Die with Zero, Getting All You Can from Your Money and Your Life by Bill Perkins. And if you go to the website, which is diewithzerobook.com, you see all these pictures of Bill Perkins, his kids, and this hot chick he's dating, <laughs> who's uh, 25 years old. And uh, you're supposed to look at this. Uh, uh, he's doing these activities and beautiful vacations, and you're going, okay, well, this is what I want to do with my money. Now, this book is aimed at people who have money. This is not aimed at broke people or people just getting by. This is aimed at people who could just choose to save their money into old age and end up with a lot of money when they die. And he's saying that's a big mistake. So here's what it says on the website, and then we're going to discuss this. We all have limited time on Earth. So how should we spend it? Financial advisors urge us to be more like the ant than the grasshopper. Work hard to maximize our earnings, save early and often, and in retirement, reap the fruits of our labors and the rewards of compound interest. What a monumental waste of human life. If you spend a lifetime working and die with lots of money left over, you've squandered a huge amount of life energy bypassing the opportunity to enjoy your money or to give it away during your lifetime. Our lives are only as fulfilling as the sum of our experiences, so the more time and money we invest in our experiences during our lifetimes, the richer our lives become. Die with Zero, he's talking about the book, will teach you the techniques for finding an optimal balance between short-term pleasures and long-term rewards across your adult lifespan. A complex and ongoing optimization problem, how to maximize fulfillment while minimizing waste. Using Perkins Toolkit, you will learn to, by the way, he should be paying me for this, I'm advertising his damn book, Maximize your lifetime experiences with the amount of enjoyment fulfillment you get at each age by creating an experiences curve. Rethink your worth. Convert earnings to experiences by plotting your net worth curve, which is peak, contrary to common thinking around 55. When to spend. Decide whether to invest in or delay an experience at any age of your life by plotting your spend curve and calculating your own personal interest rate. Americans are notorious for undersaving, but millions of Americans actually make the opposite mistake. They save too much too late in life. The wealthier half of Americans don't start decumulating until they're in their mid-70s, meaning uh, spending the money they have. Too late to enjoy certain pleasures, so even with rising life expectancies, millions of Americans are on track to have their hard-earned money outlive them. Whether you're still a starting, starving student or have some disposable income, you will relate to the idea of using your life energy in accord with your deepest values and will find practical ideas for intelligently allocating your time and money to do just that. Okay. So you get what he's trying to say here. If you have money, that you shouldn't just save it and say, hey, I'll spend it when I'm retired. Because when you're in your 70s, there's going to be a lot of things you can't do anymore or won't want to do because you're too old. There's going to be a lot of activities which are too tough for you or unappealing to you. Or maybe you'll just die before you can do them. Who says you're going to live till 80 or 85? You know, may, maybe you'll die at 70. Maybe you'll die at 65. Maybe you'll die before that. So Bill Perkins is saying, don't, don't look towards the future. Don't just sit on your money and say, oh, I'll spend this one day when I'm retired. Spend it now. Enjoy it. Get a lot out of life because your life is an accumulation of of all your experiences. 
And if you're living kind of a boring life, saying, I'll have my excitement later, I'll do the fun things later when I, when I have time to relax, that time may never come. And you may just die with all this money you could have spent. Well, I understand that point. And he, he is raising a good point that you should not go without believing that just you, you need all this money for later. That it, it, you, you'll get to spending at some point. Oh, I'll, I'll live a lavish lifestyle when I'm 75. I'm not going to do it now. Or some people just, they, they don't really want to think about the fact that they're going to die. So they don't really want to start spending their money and decreasing their net worth towards zero because they think, well, what if by some miracle I make it to 120? I'll be broke. I can't have that. I've got, I've got to save my money. Who knows how long I'm going to live? I've got to, I've got to keep my money because I, I, I never want to run out. I want to always make sure I have enough so I don't run out. Or some people, they just have a very hard time getting in the habit of spending to where they will have less of a net worth than they did before. Some people, I know some people have the opposite problem where they just spend, 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 can't hold on to a dime. But other people who have been accumulating wealth throughout their life and every day they're richer than the next feel weird about intentionally doing the opposite to make yourself worth less over time. And Bill's saying, starting from 55, you should actually start decreasing your net worth. Whatever you have, start spending at a rate where you're going to have your wealth decline. Well, is this a good idea? In some ways, yes. And I I know some older people who have money, who have decided, hey, we might as well enjoy this. And we have we a lot of things which we said before is kind of wasteful or too expensive. We're just going to do it. We want to do it. We're going to do it. We want this nice thing. We're going to get it. We want this really expensive vacation. We're going to take it. F it. I know some people are doing that, and that is the right approach. However, there's a difference between the approach of blowing your money because you're getting closer to death when you have no one to leave it to and when you have kids, especially kids that you care about and like and want to leave the money to. I'm not talking about crappy kids that uh, have a bad relationship with you or or ones that uh, you think will be irresponsible with the money or in some cases the money will actually hurt them because they'll use it to buy harmful things like drugs or whatever. Like There's, there's some kids you actually don't want to have money. But provided you have just normal kids and you have a good relationship with them, you want them to inherit your money, especially if the kids don't have the ability to earn what you did. Even if they're doing okay, you may have made a lot of money through luck, through opportunities that don't exist anymore, maybe because you're just better at doing it than your kids are. Your kids aren't going to be clones of you. Your kids may have a lesser ability to make money. And the ability to make money is not always correlated with intelligence. It helps to be smart to make money, but there's people who make a lot of money that aren't really, really smart. There's people who are really, really smart that that never make much money. So maybe you have that skill to make money and your kids don't. And you still want them to do well in life financially. You still want them to have nice things. You still want them to live well, even though 
if left to their own devices, maybe they couldn't be more than like lower middle class or just middle class. Maybe you want them to above that because you you are and you you have a ton of money and you you want to help your kids who you love and think highly of. They're just not all that good at making money. You don't have the talents you do or maybe whatever you did to earn the money couldn't be duplicated at this point. So if you have kids to leave it to, then it becomes a balancing act. And, and by the way, the, I was told by someone more familiar with this book that it's not as simple as it appears. He's not really saying just spend your money down to zero and screw your kids. He's suggesting in his book that you come up with what you think your kids should have if you have kids. And don't tr- don't touch that. Make a, a trust fund for them. And then the rest of it is your money and you don't worry about your kids inheriting it. But I can see that, but I still don't think that's necessarily right. Because what he's really saying here is just come up with a figure of what you think your kids just deserve to inherit. And and the rest just, just blow. The rest just to spend it on yourself. With an eye towards what you're what you think how long you're gonna live and live, leaving yourself enough just in case you live a really long time to where you're not poor, but uh, to, to where you're really trying. The, the goal is to not die with that much beyond what you're leaving the kids. And there's a few flaws with this. This sounds good in theory, but there's a few flaws with this. Uh, first of all, I don't think you should say my kids should only get this much. So let's let's throw out some hypothetical numbers. Okay, let's say you have uh, a net worth of twenty million. Let's say you have two kids. So if you were to die, ignoring the inheritance tax thing, which we're going to talk about soon, each kid would get ten million. Now you could look at it and say they don't need ten million. I think an inheritance of three million is great. So I will set up a trust fund for each kid for three million, and the remaining fourteen I'm going to strive to spend that all by the time I die. And even if it's not wasted, maybe you'll give some of it to charity. Maybe you'll do a lot of things that you otherwise probably wouldn't do, but that you would enjoy. But there's a law of diminishing returns a lot of times when you spend a lot of money. And sometimes you're spending a lot more for something that's only slightly better. Now, if you have unlimited money to where you have so much, like let's say you're Jeff Bezos, you don't look at the cost of anything. You have so much money, you're not going to spend it all. And, and the, so the cost of something, you just you just want the best. And I don't know if that's the way he lives, but like it would make sense to live that way if you're Jeff Bezos or even a reduced Jeff Bezos, which I, I guess he is now that he got a divorce. But <laughs> I, th- there it makes sense. But... If you have $20 million, that's a whole lot. But it's not Jeff Bezos. And it's not so much that you can just disregard the price of everything. And that's where the law of diminishing returns of enjoyment comes in. I know he mentions about not wasting. So it pro- there's probably sections of the book just saying you don't just blow the money, which is good. But I still don't like the idea of striving to spend it all. Other than some amount you earmark for the kids. I think what one should do if you're in that position is kind of a hybrid of what he's suggesting 
and what these people are doing that are making the mistake by holding too much money and dying with a whole lot and, and not doing as much as they can that they could enjoy. And that is, if you think of something that you'd like to do that you would enjoy, then just do it. And don't worry about the price. That doesn't mean waste. That means get value out of what you do still. Don't just, if there's a, if there's like a best option that's five times as expensive as the second best and the second best is almost good as the best, take the second best. But other than that, if there's something you want to do, do it and do it well. Do it in a quality way. Do everything first class. Enjoy life. Enjoy the finer things. Get things you want. Don't concern yourself of whether this is really worth it or whether uh, you really need this or really need to do this. Start loosening up to where if something appeals to you, you just do it. But at the same time, do not strive to spend everything. Because you know what? If you don't spend it all and you're left with a lot of money at the end, and it goes to your kids, great. Provided you trust your kids with the money, your kids, who you should love very much and you should want good things for, they will make use of it. They will live well. And your kids have may have many, many years left, depending on how old they are. And by the way, his kids are... He's 50, and his kids are not adults. So his kids are... And much like my son is almost 40 years younger than me. He's got, it looks like a similar age difference with his kids. So if your kids are that much younger than you, they are going to live many decades after you on average. So they will have the time to spend that money. So why not let them have it? I'm not saying go without so your kids can inherit extra money. I'm saying live how you want, but don't strive to spend everything. Don't feel like you've wasted your time earning this money because you're dying with money in your bank account. Because it's going to go to your kids. Now, if you have no kids, then I agree with him. I agree if you have no kids and you have no one you're leaving it to, that really means anything to you. That the best thing you can do is really, yeah, really start spending because it's going to be useless to you once you're dead. Because it's not going to anyone you care about and the money, the time you spent earning it will have been wasted. He's got a good point. That a lot of times the time you spend earning money is not pleasant or fun. There can, it can be stressful. And the reward is the money. Sometimes there's satisfaction to it too, but a lot of times the reward is the money, and if you don't spend that money and you die, then yes, you have wasted the time earning that. Where I agree, sort of, is that I've been a big advocate of always having a quality of life, no matter what stage you are in your life, aside from something like where you're in school and for you know, temporary time you have to really spend a lot of time on, on the schooling or whatever, but aside from that... You should not get into a, like a workaholic situation where all you do all day and all night is work. Even if you're making extra money, you should not do that. I don't mean on a short-term basis if you need to catch up on something or do a special project or whatever. I'm talking about in general 
you shouldn't be living your life where the entire thing is work. Unless you're really, really enjoying it. But if you're not really, really enjoying it, even if work's okay, you shouldn't spend all your life there. Because eventually you're going to look back and go, wow, I wasted a lot of years just working. And for what? I, I didn't enjoy it. What did I do with my life? I worked. I didn't have fun. I didn't enjoy, I didn't enjoy things. I, I wasted my 30s, 40s, and 50s just working, working, working. And I actually had to make this decision myself when I was in the software industry and, and I was working for a company that started to want its employees to work a lot of unpaid overtime, which was, is very common in the industry. I'm not bashing this company. And I told them, thanks, but no thanks. And they said, well, you know, we, we hand out bonuses at the end of the year. If you don't do this, you're not going to get a bonus. I said, okay. They said, really? You don't want the bonus? I said, not, not if it means I have to work a ton of unpaid overtime, no. So you want me to work extra hours when it's really needed? I'll do it. You want me to work like regularly many, many, many hours per week, every week, week in, week out? Answer is a big no. I didn't use those words, but that was uh, my attitude about it. They asked why. I said, because my personal life is important to me. So that's what I encourage everybody to do. And that's a form of what Bill Perkins is saying. He's saying, don't, he's saying, once you've earned the money, don't forget to spend it and enjoy it. That part I agree. But to actually aim for zero, no. Unless you really have nobody to leave it to. Let your kids have it. Now, a topic that will spin off of this one is the inheritance tax. There's a big debate right now on Twitter between me and several others, including Bill Perkins and Andrew Barber is a big part of it, as several other people are as well, where there are a number of people, including Mr. Perkins, advocating for the inheritance tax. The inheritance tax is a tax in the United States where when you die, if your estate is more than a certain amount of money, that it is taxed, even if you already paid taxes on the income that led to you having that estate. Remember, you you have to pay income tax when you make money, so you've already paid income tax, and then just because you've died and you can't have the money anymore as a dead person, that you have to pay another substantial tax if you have a large estate. So... There's been a lot of debate about this over the years. The, inherit- the inheritance tax goes back over a century. And in recent decades, it's gone back and forth regarding how much it is because there's been an ongoing battle between Republicans and Democrats. Republicans are against the inheritance tax. They just want it gone. Democrats are for the inheritance tax. And then there's sometimes agreements in the middle where the threshold is raised. At one point, the threshold was pretty low. It was actually less than a million dollar estate would uh, would be getting taxed. And I think it was like 550000 or 600000 something fairly low at, at a rate of 55% over that threshold. And then first it got raised, then it got eliminated, then it came back. 
and that's currently where it sits. And uh, basically, if the Republicans have complete control of the presidency, the House, and the Senate, the inheritance tax is going to get eliminated in most cases. And then if the Democrats have complete control, then the inheritance tax not only returns, but it it will sometimes return with uh, a lower threshold. In uh, 2019, the uh, the threshold was uh, fairly high, especially compared to what it used to be. It's for a uh, estate of $11.4 million for singles and $22.8 million for couples. So is that going to affect most people? No. Is it fair? No. Now, it's called the death tax by those who are against it. And that's, that's what it is. You're actually being taxed for dying. As you might already guess, I am against it. And first of all, one should not be for it or against it based upon whether it's going to affect them. So you may say, okay, well, I'm never going to have $11 million in assets. So yeah, I'm for it. Screw them. But that's not the right way to approach things like this. You, you need to be for or against something because you feel it's right or wrong, not because it affects you or doesn't affect you. Now, yeah, if it affects you, you can have a stronger opinion on it, but you, you should make these decisions based upon what you really believe is right, not just, oh, it, it's wrong, but I, I'm for it because it screws someone else but not me. That's, that's not a very ethical way of viewing things. So... I don't care if the inheritance tax threshold is set so high that it's a number where I have no chance to ever reach in my life. Now, if I were to die today, no, I would not have uh, $11.4 million. So uh, it would not affect me. But could I? Yes. If it's set at $100 million, no, then, then that wouldn't affect me. But I don't care because that's not the reason I'm against it. I'm against it because... I don't think it's right, and I'll explain to you why I don't think it's right. Bill Perkins, why would he want this? He has kids. He has a lot of money. So why would he be for the inheritance tax? Well, it's because of his whole die with zero belief. He's he's a big believer that one should spend their money. They shouldn't end up with something like $11 million to leave their kids. So that's... He's for that. He doesn't think that's. Uh, he thinks it's a fair tax, and he thinks that uh, those who save that much money are making a mistake anyway. And he's also of the belief, as are many very rich people, including those much richer than him, that the inheritance tax causes people to rethink their views on charity, and that it, if you eliminate it, that a lot less uh, charitable contributions occur from super rich people, that this makes people say, well, if the government's going to get it anyway, I might as well leave it to charity where it won't be taxed. And I'll answer that statement shortly. My problem with the inheritance tax comes from a few few aspects of it. Number one, it's involuntary. And that's something people overlook. And that's why I like the term the death tax, because it really strikes to the heart of what this really is. The inheritance tax is something, if, if you have a, an estate of that size and you don't use tricks to avoid it, which, by the way, there's a lot of tricks out there to avoid it, so only the people who don't try to get around it get screwed, which I, I, I hate laws like that, too. I hate 
taxation laws where the people who know how to do tax dodges are the ones who benefit from it, and those who are just uh, playing by the system as it's written are the ones who get screwed. That's a bad law in that case. That law shouldn't be on the books if it's, if it's that easy to exploit. And this is, and it always will be. It's very hard to write an inheritance tax law to where there aren't ways around it. I, I won't go into why, but th- there are many ways around it if you, plan a, if you plan a hit. That's one big flaw with it logistically. But we're not even talking logistically here. We're talking about whether it's right or wrong. Assuming, let's pretend people had no way to get around it. The big problem with the inheritance tax, as I was saying, is that it's not voluntary. Every one of us is going to die. We also don't know when we're going to die, unless we commit suicide or unless we have a terminal disease where it's very clear that we're going to be dying very soon. But aside from one of those two factors, which does not apply to most people, you don't know when your death is coming. It could be very soon. Like, unfortunately, Kobe Bryant found out. Or it could be many years down the line. I could die tomorrow. I could still be alive in 50 years. You don't know. I won't be alive in 100 years for sure, but 50? Yeah, I could be alive. So, I don't know. You don't know. And when that day comes, which will come for sure, whatever you have... You can't own anymore. A dead person cannot own anything. So at that point, something happens to your money. Your money has to go somewhere. And if you've left it to somebody, which most people do, then if your estate exceeds the threshold for the inheritance tax, then that money gets taxed. And this is different from all other taxes where all other taxes come from doing something voluntary. Even earning money is voluntary. But dying is not voluntary. Dying is something that has to happen to you. You can't stop. You can sometimes hold it off for additional time, but you can't stop it. And if you're left with money, then it's not fair it gets taxed especially because you've already paid income tax on that money. It's essentially putting a second income tax on the same money. Now, some people say, well, what about sales tax? That's a double taxation, right? You, you've already paid income tax, but then you, you go buy something, you're paying sales tax. Uh, why aren't you against sales tax? Well, because, again, sales tax is something completely different. It's not an income tax. It's a tax upon something you're voluntarily doing, and that is spending your money. And sales tax is actually going to the state or local government, not to the federal government. But, but even putting aside where it's going, you don't have to spend the money. You don't have to buy things. So sales tax is in proportion to how much you buy, how much you spend. That's voluntary. Death is not voluntary. And what's happening here is that the money that's being inherited by whoever you leave it to is being treated as income. So it's being taxed again. And the justification is, well, it's not your income, it's their income now. 
So you paid income tax when you made the money, but now they're making the money, so now they have to pay it too. And they say, well, what about if you start a company and you hire employees? You pay your money to them, but they have to pay income tax on the money that you're paying them, even if you paid the money, even if you pay taxes on the money you made to pay, to pay them in the first place. But again, that's totally different. This is all voluntary. The person who is paying an inheritance tax is forced to give their money away. When you die, your money is all taken away from you. All your assets are taken away from you. It's depressing, but true. You have control where they go, but you can't keep them. So imagine we take death out of this. Let's just say one day the government comes to you and says, guess what? We now have a right to take everything you own and leave you with zero. And you go, wait, 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 you can't do that. They go, well, but hold on, we, we have a small piece of good news for you. You can, you can designate whoever you want to get your money and all your assets. Or it can be a few people to split it up. It, it can go to anybody else but you. You go, okay, well, that kind of sucks, but at least I get to choose who it goes to. Okay, fine. Uh, give it to my kids. Okay, done, but we're taking a good portion of it. Why? Because we feel like it. And they take a good portion of, of your assets and then they give the rest of your kids. Would you feel like the government just stole from you? Yes. The only difference is that you're dying. That's the only difference here. And let's look at it this way. If someone earns $10 million today, and a second person earns $10 million today, and person A, the first one to make $10 million today, lives another 50 years, and he reads Bill Perkins' book, and he spends his $10 million over the next 50 years, guess what? That is never taxed a second time in inheritance tax. But person B gets in a car accident the following day and dies. Guess what? It's taxed again. That money is taxed twice when he earned it and the next day when he died. How about this? Think about the fact that you... You're, you're leaving so, – so it's being said that you're, it's actually your kids paying it or whoever you're leaving it to. And that uh, it's not you paying it twice. It's you paying and then your kids paying. So any, any income, doesn't matter how you get it, is subject to income tax is, is what the argument is. But the thing is it really isn't – it's not really their money. It becomes their money. But what's really happening – is that they're taxing your money and then giving it to the people who you want to have it. The exact order of things is a formality. It's, it's, it comes out the same way. But what they're really doing is they're taking money you earned, you paid taxes on when you earned it, and then just because you died, they are taking a large portion of it before whoever your next of kin gets it. That's what's really happening. 
It really is a death tax. You're, you, they're just taking a big portion of your assets because you died. Why? Why, why does the government deserve your assets because you died? So, so you died early. So, so this means they get to just take a lot of your assets? Your kids don't get to enjoy it? It doesn't make any sense to me. How come, how come I can spend the money at will without it being taxed that second time if I stay alive? But somehow if I die, it gets taxed. It doesn't make any sense to me. Now, if you dig deeper, you see the real reason for it. The real reason is class envy and jealousy. There are some people who feel that children of rich people do, do not deserve to be super rich. They deserve to have something, but they don't deserve to be super rich because they didn't make the money. They didn't do anything to make the money. They're just, they just happened to be born to parents who made a lot of money. So how is that fair that these kids, who in many cases are just very ordinary and didn't really do anything worthy with their lives, why is it fair that they can have just oodles of money just because their dad happened to make a fortune. Is that fair? And doesn't this just perpetuate the same families having all the money generation after generation after generation? Shouldn't we do something to make it more fair to everybody? Well, there's a few problems with that argument. But that, that is the reason, that's the reason a lot of people support it. The ones that support it, it, it really is about that. It's, it's jealousy of why, why do these kids deserve to inherit it? What did they do to deserve this? That's a crappy argument. First of all, it's not like when someone pays inheritance tax that the money then goes to some fund to help the, the most impoverished, struggling people. This goes into a general fund for the government. A lot of it's wasted. It's a drop in the bucket, uh, the, uh, the bucket compared to the federal budget. It's, it's really not doing very much. So all you're doing is taking away from people. It, it's not really improving anyone else's life. It's just taking away. It's dragging others down. Even if you don't feel these rich kids did anything to deserve it, it's not helping anyone to take their money away from them. Number two, it's a fallacious argument to say that someone doesn't deserve to get such and such money. Because... Everybody is born into something that is a privilege over somebody else. That isn't necessarily fair to everybody. If you're born in a first world country, then you already were born into a privilege that many don't have. You have a big advantage being born into the U.S., the U.K., any, any first world country compared to being born into a third world country especially if you're born into a third world country and you're poor. So if you're born into a first world country, already a big advantage that many others don't have. If you're born to parents who are middle class or higher, big advantage many others don't have. If you're born uh, into a family where you're, the, the parents are, are good and loving, big advantage over many who don't have that. If you inherited traits from your parents that are helpful to you in life, such as athletic ability, good looks, intelligence. You have a big advantage over those who didn't get that. We can't seek to equalize everybody because some people are born into worse circumstances than others. What if you're born healthy? There's many people who are born with 
terrible medical problems that are with them their whole lives and they die young. That's unfair too. This doesn't mean we should start making everyone else sick on purpose so it's all equal. You can't seek to equalize the situation that each person is born into. Yeah, you may look at someone who's born into a super rich family and go, wow, that guy's set for life no matter what he does, as long as he doesn't piss off his dad. Yeah, you can be a little jealous of that, but that doesn't justify taking it away or taking part of his estate away. And it doesn't really do society any good. So that's, that's a stupid reason, that's stupid reasoning to want to break up these family dynasties. Who cares? Let the, let the, quote, family dynasties exist. And the truth is, if you have generation after generation of kids who are not very competent, uh, eventually the money is going to disappear anyway because they're going to mismanage it or they're not going to make more and eventually it's going to be spent. So unless you have kids who are good at maintaining the family's wealth in future generations then those families will eventually cease to be rich anyway. I'm not saying they all do, but the, but many times the, the family fortune doesn't last for many generations. It can easily be wasted. It's just an arbitrary and unfair tax. And I, I can't see a reason for it. I can't see the justification why you take someone's estate you take a portion of their estate away just because they died. You lose this this many assets that you earned because you died. And now the next person you want to have it, then uh, tough luck. Now people say, well, wait a minute. You, you can't just give all your assets to your kids right now while you're still alive. You'll be taxed on that. So, Or they'll be taxed if you do that. So how is this any different? Well, because you're choosing to give your, your assets to your kids while you're alive. But you don't choose death. The only reason the assets are going to to whoever you're leaving it to is because you can't keep it anymore. It's been forced away from you because you're dead. So then it goes to the next best option, according to you, of who should have your assets if you can't have them. So remember, it's an involuntary transaction, not a voluntary transaction. It's one that we must all deal with if we die with anything. And something we're forced to do, we should not be taxed on. Especially if it's the tax we've already paid. We've already paid income on this money. Now we can't have the money anymore because we're dead. You don't charge it as income again. because Just because someone else has to have it because you can't have it anymore. doesn't make any sense to me. So that's being debated on Twitter. If you want, you can take a look at my Twitter and participate with me. All right, moving on here. This is a longer show than I wanted it to be. It's 7.39 right now. We are getting towards the end. We have three topics left. So I'm going to talk about the situation at Party Poker and a surprising statement that Rob Young, the CEO of Party, said. Now, we all know about the bot problem in online poker. The bots have become more advanced. They've become better. They've become very tough to beat. There's a concern about bots. But how do you stop them? 
yeah, you can have the software look for certain signs of them and also look for play styles that are indicative of bots and look for mouse movements that are indicative of bots. But what if there were a better way that could not be evaded by bots that are written very well to emulate the way humans act? Well, Rob Young has an idea. He said, I'm going to ask Party Poker to implement facial recognition on sign-in and randomly when in the money or at final tables or at higher stakes cash games to one, stop cheaters, bots opening and buying new accounts, two, stop multi-accounting, and three, stop ghosting. Do you support this? Yes or no? Hmm, Interesting question. Well, so far in this poll, which has over 5,000 votes, 85% said they support this. Wow. But could this work, and is this the right thing to do? Now, I don't understand he's going to stop ghosting. Ghosting is where somebody else is helping you play. You're, you're the one at the controls, but there's somebody else helping you. I don't know how it's going to stop ghosting, because all facial recognition is doing is verifying that you're there, not that somebody else is watching and giving you advice. So that doesn't make any sense. But ignoring the ghosting statement, which he made, uh, he claims this will stop people from uh, botting, stop people from selling accounts to each other, and uh, stop multi-accounting, which is true. If uh, Basically, facial recognition would be saying that uh, what, what it's going to do, it's going to look through the camera of your computer and see if you are the one who's sitting at the computer right now. And if it's not you, then it will not let you play. And is this a good idea? Now, you may say reflexively, yes. Why wouldn't it be? If you're playing as yourself, as you're supposed to be, you have nothing to fear. And if you're multi-accounting or botting, then you will not be the person on the account. Well, there's some problems here. First of all, how good could the facial recognition be? This is using a camera in your computer, which may not be functioning that well. You may not use the camera in your computer. I haven't used the camera in my computer in ages. I don't even know if it still works. It may not be very high res. Uh, you may have changed your look somewhat, or it may have just aged to you look di- where you look different. And then what happens if, if it uh, detects that you're not the person? Do you get your account frozen, closed? Are you just not allowed to keep playing? But if you're at a final table, there's no time to make that decision. You're either allowed to play or you're not. So imagine you make the final table of a tournament. You're all excited. It shuts you down because it thinks you're not you when you really are you. Just because uh, you've grown a beard and you didn't have a beard when they when they saw you before. Or, or your, your, your webcam's not working well. The resolution isn't good. And it doesn't believe you're the same person. Or for whatever reason you've aged recently, your, your facial structure has changed a little bit. Do we really have enough faith in PC web cameras and Party Poker's image recognition to not make these errors. That's a big potential problem. 
And I think people who voted yes aren't necessarily considering that. And I think it would be something that would be useful as kind of like spot checks to say, we're going to take a picture of you now. You have 10 seconds to get in front of your webcam. And if you don't appear in front of your webcam, or it'll take the picture of you, it'll, it'll attempt a facial recognition, and if it fails, then it'll send it to support to go have a human review it, and then decide whether you should be suspended, and not just suspend you on the spot. So let you complete the final table, but not let you cash out until the, if it thinks you failed it, until a human reviews it. That, that could be something decent. But something that would automatically stop you would be a problem. But there's more than this. There, there's something else you might be ignoring. Let me ask you something here. Let me ask you. When you play online poker, are you always dressed and are you ever browsing any sites in the background that might be presenting you explicit material? Might you be browsing porn while you are playing online poker? Has this ever happened before? I can't picture any of my listeners watching porn while playing online poker. They're not those type, but... What if you are? Would you like party poker spying on you and seeing you jerking off as you're playing online poker? And who has access to these images? Would you like any support rep to be able to pull up these images of you, maybe naked, maybe doing something while you're watching another window? Or... Do you want it having access to what's going on in your house at the moment? Whatever's happening there. Does it seem intrusive to just be able to watch you? Now, if it gives you a warning, you have 10 seconds to get on camera. Yeah, I guess you you can stop whatever you're doing and let it take a picture of your face. But that it's already a little disturbing that it, it would be just forcing you to take a picture when it tells you to, especially if it's constantly watching, which you'd be giving it access to do. So there's some possible problems with this. Also, not every computer has a webcam. Are you going to require everybody on party has a webcam? Or a working webcam, at least. Because some people don't have one. So now that's a requirement to play poker? That's a little bit weird. I don't know. I think using this more as a tool to flag possible cheaters and then letting a human review would be the best, but... It should always be something that the person gives permission before it's done. Something like, we're going to take a uh, screenshot of you 
through your camera, please uh, click here when ready. You have 10 seconds to click or something like that. And it'll never stop you from playing at the moment. It'll only be reviewed later if it if you fail it. Had to be something like that. I don't know if this is ever going to happen. This was just Rob Young's idea. But we will see if it happens. Alrighty, moving on to the next topic here. Our rating slowly going up as it gets later and later. It is 7.48 in the morning Pacific time. I think we're in our second to last topic here. The Hard Rock Las Vegas is shutting down on Monday. It will become a virgin property and the Hard Rock branding will completely be gone, but this will not be until the fall. There will be a period of uh, probably about seven, eight months where the whole thing is closed and here is here's the details on that you you can still get there if you're in vegas you can still get over to the hard rock if you want to uh spend some final days there so here's what's happening on february 3rd they're closing the property it's closing on uh, at 3 a.m. actually, so you're not going to be able to spend much time there on Monday. It's basically Super Bowl Sunday and a few hours after, and it's shutting it down. The Hard Rock opened on March 9th, 1995. It is not on the Strip. It is on Paradise, which is off Strip. Not really far from the Strip, but not on Strip and not all that easy to walk to. It was meant to attract younger visitors. And this was just as the Strip had expanded in the 90s. There's a big expansion on the Strip in 93. This is two years later. And they were focusing more on entertainment than on gambling. They had a small casino compared to other hotels around there. And it just became less and less relevant over time. The Hard Rock brand also lost some popularity as the years passed by. But the theme also just wasn't that exciting anymore. There were many more edgier and more interesting themes in Vegas, even for the younger crowd. The Hard Rock kind of was an afterthought, a property you go to that's kind of okay and it's off the strip and sometimes it's cheaper, but not a destination property you'd want to go to. So this was coming for a long time and it is going to reopen in the fall, as I mentioned, as uh, Virgin Hotels Las Vegas. On Saturday, which is today, at 8 p.m., Richard Bosworth, also known as Boz, is going to be at the Hard Rock and is going to give a final toast to the Hard Rock. They're going to have free live music all weekend. There's uh, going to be memorabilia they're giving away. They are rolling back food and drink prices to 1995 levels. Not all of them, but a lot of them are going to be rolled back for that day only or for that weekend only, before they close. 
Most interesting, they are selling their furniture. For $800, you can buy a two-bedroom package that includes a king or queen bed frame and headboard, but no mattress, strangely enough. Two nightstands, a sofa, an ottoman, an end table, two lamps, a dresser, a desk and chair, and two televisions, which will be at least 42 inches, sometimes larger. And if you want to pay half of that, you will get uh, a one-bedroom package. So you can start doing this already, today, February 1st. That's a not a very long time. To, I don't know how long the sale is going to continue. Maybe it'll be after it closes, but uh, otherwise there's not very much time to buy this stuff. Now, this sounds like a good deal to get all that stuff for like 800 bucks. You, you get uh, a king or queen bed frame, a headboard, two nightstands, a sofa, an ottoman, an end table, two lamps, a dresser, a desk, and a chair, and two televisions. Keep in mind this is used hotel furniture. It is a lot you're getting for 800 but you are getting used hotel furniture for your house. That's and probably not really high quality furniture. But if you if you want to get all that stuff for your house, uh, eight hundred dollars is a pretty good deal. Especially you get two televisions too. So if you want that stuff and you're in Vegas, you live in Vegas, you may want to go down there and find out about it. Originally they were not going to close for this amount of time, they're just going to keep they're gonna shut down parts of of the property but keep the whole thing open overall and then they decided screw it it's no point keeping like a half operational property going let's just shut the whole thing down and open it back up it appears it'll be closed for something between six and nine months before reopening and they are going to try to help employees uh, employees that do not quit before the hotel closes, which is in less than two days now, will get a bonus of up to 10 weeks pay. And then if they agree to work for Virgin Hotels Las Vegas, they will automatically get their jobs back. They don't have to interview. They don't have to compete for it. Of course, these people have to go without a job for quite some time. But what they're, what they're trying to do here is if you stay all the way to the end, then you'll get over two months' pay for doing nothing. And then if you can tough out the next several months or work somewhere else and quit and come there, then your, your job will be waiting for you again in the fall. Just Some people may not have the flexibility to do that. So goodbye, Hard Rock. And at one point, Advantage players liked the Hard Rock, especially Blackjack players, because the main concern at the Hard Rock was not about Advantage players, it was about people under 21 who were playing in the Blackjack games. So that's what the pit bosses were concentrating on, as was the other uh, surveillance there, and less on card counters. At least that was the case uh, in the earlier 2000s. I haven't followed that since then. All right, here's the final topic, and then I'm going to shut this down. I'm going to go to sleep before I exit the secret location. There is going to be another new hotel with a new theme 
besides the uh, the new uh, Las Vegas Virgin Hotel and the others that I've announced before. This is one I have not discussed before in this show. This is going to be the Atari-themed hotel. There actually is going to be a hotel based upon Atari. And yes, that Atari. Atari has signed a licensing agreement with a U.S. real estate developer called uh, True North Studio for the development of Atari-branded hotels in the United States. So not just Vegas, but Vegas will be one of them. It will feature, quote, common areas following the latest trends in hospitality with a focus on the video game universe and the Atari brand. They will also have an eSports studio, Atari gaming playground, meeting and event rooms, co-working spaces, restaurants, bars, a bakery, a movie theater, and a gym. And they plan to break ground on the first hotel in Phoenix. But they will also be having them in Las Vegas, Austin, Texas, uh, Chicago, Illinois, uh, Denver, San Francisco, San Jose, and Seattle. I know I said Austin, Texas twice, but I misread it. They have not given any information when those others will open, including the Las Vegas version. But the Phoenix one is going to at least break ground with being built. The Las Vegas version may not appear for a while. There actually will be the Atari logo on the hotel, and it'll actually say Atari. It says actually it'll be an Atari branded hotel. I don't know if the gaming theme will be more about uh, newer Atari games or the classic games. I would think they'd be smart to do both. Otherwise, the older people are not going to find it appealing. There's a lot of people who are 40s and 50s that have fond memories of Atari, but don't know very much about Atari's more recent work, nor are they currently gamers. But uh, if they were to have these hotels with themes that they were familiar with from the 80s, like uh, Centipede and Asteroid and Asteroids and games like that, then... I think that could be appealing to certain people with that kind of nostalgia. Now, keep in mind that only the Phoenix version is going to break ground, and even that hasn't happened yet. It's possible this whole thing will fall through. It's possible it may never come to Las Vegas, but this was in the news. I figured I might as well mention it. And if anything develops further in Las Vegas, I will let you know. That is it. That is it, and... I'll try to get a little bit of sleep and then I will go on with the rest of my weekend including the Super Bowl. I hope you found this kind of surprise show. Though I said I'm going to do a show this week. And I hope you realized it before it got too obsolete. I'm planning to go back to the Friday show next Friday. So the next show should be on Friday, February 7th. And the big question, will I have a show on Valentine's Day? Answer, 
Yes. This is how dedicated I am to this show that I will have it on Valentine's Day rather than spending the evening of Valentine's Day with my girlfriend. Can you believe it? I'm really going to do a Valentine's Day Poker Fraud Alert Radio. What does that say about me? I'd rather you don't think about that. But just think about the fact that I am providing you with weekend entertainment next week and damning Valentine's Day that this does not stop me. That I will stop at nothing to bring you this entertainment which brings me no money. In fact, Bill Perkins would be proud because by spending time on Poker Fraud Alert and doing this show... I am decumulating my money. Because it costs me money. And I don't make money from it. Yeah, I have my little Amazon banner at the bottom where when people click that and buy things, I get a percentage, but it doesn't add up to very much. The site does run at a loss, I promise you that. Okay, people. Thank you for listening to this show. And I don't have any co-hosts to thank. There were no co-hosts. I just talked all the way through. You notice that? I didn't take a break. I hope you guys appreciate this and what I do to my voice in the name of Internet Radio. Good night and shalom.